One of the most enduring and engaging features of the A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, House of Dragon fandom is theory crafting. It has a particularly rich tradition, not only due to the sheer depth of the material, the number of topics George intentionally writes in a way to leave us guessing. And yeah, he's, he's real good at that. And of course, the fact that it's not done. There's a lot to consider, even in plot lines that are apparently finished, but any incomplete story has a lot to offer in terms of the unresolved. And just given the sheer number of plot lines that are unresolved, I mean, that's just so much to talk about and guess at and predict whether certain plot lines will intertwine at all and whether they don't oh. alone is a reason to theorycraft or inspires theorycrafting. There's a wide variety of ways in which this manifests. Sticking with the last part, people, of course, take their stabs at guessing how certain plot lines or characters will end or end up. And we're going to do the same. We've got a lot of theories from y'all. We didn't have to go mine them elsewhere. You all provided us with a lot of material to discuss today. And that's what we'll do. I think we have at least three or four. Yeah, at least three or four. We'll spend (laughs) about a half an hour on each on four different theories. No, (laughs) No, we've got a lot more than that. (laughs) That and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome, y'all. It's uh, time for another episode. It's a little different style episode today. We've done theory-ish episodes in the past, Q&A episodes in the past, but it's been quite a while, I think, other than the mid-season Q&A we did for House of the Dragon, which really was more of a review and summarizing. We didn't do a lot of predicting, so this is a, that wasn't very much of a theory episode, but it does have the, the structure of an episode like this where we're taking lots of questions and there's a lot more open discussion, a lot more feedback from y'all. But also different than our recent episodes, but something we have done before is giveaways. We're going to be doing some giveaways today. That's going to be a lot of fun. Shea, tell folks what we've got planned. Yeah, we're going to give away a handful of History of Westeros shirts, like the egg one that Aziz is wearing right now, or like the Just Text one that Sean is wearing as well, I suppose, because... You'll get to choose. If you look at our website, which is on the screen right now, you'll see we have egg shirts, but we have multiple colors. We have good said shirts. We have branch. Like we have a few different with Gregor the Toasty. So <laughs> when you win, you'll be able to tell me when you send me your address what shirt you want. So we're going to give away some shirts to folks in the live chat, some to people that submitted theories ahead of time. So if you submitted a theory ahead of time and you're listening to this after the fact, you'll want to check your messages wherever you submitted your theory. If it was Patreon or Facebook or wherever, we'll reach out to you and ask you what shirt you want and what address you want. So to win a shirt, you have to listen to the end and pay $20. (laughs) $20,000. Yes, these are really nice shirts. (laughs) But yes, at the end of the episode, before we wrap up, I will list off the people in the live chat who won a shirt. Right on. And if you don't win a shirt, those all those shirts are, of course, for sale as well at our shop, historywestros.threadless.com. Yes. 
Sean, what are you imbibing today? I have a, what's nearly a standard drink for me at this point. It's the naked protein berry drink mixed with the blackberry sparkling ice and Mountain Dew, but it's the watermelon Mountain Dew. So that's oh, my, that's so my variation yeah. for the day. <laughs> wow. Massive change there. You know, I actually do have a difference myself. Instead of a thermos full of coffee, I have a mug with coffee. But that is actually not the different part. The different part is I also have a nice House of the Dragon tumbler here filled mm-hmm. with tomato juice. <laughs> Standard combination of tomato juice and coffee. <laughs> what can I mix with tomato juice? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Vodka. <laughs> <laughs> Olive. Can I also point out, I've switched out my posters back here. I've got Crouch of Tiger, Hidden Dragon with Michelle Yeoh, who's up for Best Actress. Her movie's up for Best Picture and 11 other nominations. Yeah. The Oscars are coming up this week. She's good. <laughs> She's not nominated for The Witcher Blood Origin, which wasn't good. <laughs> but she was in it. <laughs> and she was one of the high points. <laughs> she was also in Star Trek Discovery, by the way. Oh, cool. One of the new Star Trek, several different Star Trek series out right now, but she was in one of them. Well, I'll take um, all the Michelle Yeoh we can get. I see here, Astronaut Yaras in the chat says, I hope you make drinks again at Ice and Fire Con. That was fun. That is our plan. We had such a great time doing Sean's a drink bar at the at, during our meetup where we just, just mixed all these drinks. So yeah, we'll absolutely do that again. Hell yeah. I also, again, this year, I'm going to make a little one-minute clip a one minute review of all the Academy Award nominations. Oh. I'm waiting to see who wins yeah, so I can include yeah. that cool. in my my bits, but look for that in about 10 days. Nice. Dancy Sean getting back to the YouTubing. Hey, nice. That's cool. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, your movie review stuff is high quality. Check it out, folks. Also want to shout out our good friend Nina. She had plenty to contribute for today's episode. Of course, we like to get lots of takes on various theories because, well, there's a lot of different ways to look at them, a lot of different ways to approach them. Latest blog post on goodqueenalley.com. I read it about 30 minutes ago. The, it was a discussion on whether or not Viserys should have named Rhaenyra his Hand of the King. And short answer, yes. But why and what effect that would have had is why you'd want to read that post. It's quite good, informative, and well-written. This episode was voted on by patrons. We did, as a lot of y'all noticed, have to delay it because of my illness, but we're back on track. Next week was going to be the Battle of the Trident, but we've got a guest episode instead. So the Battle of the Trident will be the week after. Instead, next week, we've got Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn. We're going to talk about mushroom and sources, medieval sources, ancient sources, things like that. That's going to be a lot of fun. So the character and the topic all together. And the week after that, we're going to have, well, like I said, Battle of Trident. And the week after that, we're going to have Nina on for Baylor the Blessed. So March is all set here at History of Westeros. So that's pretty awesome. And we'll keep it going. Before we get into our first theory, we have our standard trivia question. Whose last words are, he's dead? Not talking about himself, <laughs> but that's their last words. Okay. Let's start with what makes a good theory. Now, good is very subjective, and there's a couple of different ways you can aim for good. Now, when I say good, do I mean likely to be accurate, well-constructed, well-thought-out? Yeah, I can mean that, but I also can mean fun. There's kind of two forks in the road here. There's the fun theories that don't have to be 
super accurate. They can be a little loose with material. Maybe not too loose or else people just won't, won't glom onto it. They won't vibe with it if it's just too crazy. You want them to be thought-provoking, yes, I think. Yes, Right? And so sometimes it might be fun, but if it's too out there, it's not really thought... It's know, not really like that fun said, to other people, necessarily. Like, you know? Dario is from Jupiter. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, maybe there's nothing specifically disproving that, but there's no evidence for it. How does it change anything yeah. in the story? How would they reveal that? Like, it's too out there to really be thought-provoking. I guess it's fun, but yeah. I don't think it's worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, you want textual evidence. That's important. That's usually going to be at the heart of it. You're going to want to have something there. And you're going to want to have it fit the story. Now, that's where fun and story sometimes often cross over. Sometimes they don't. Like if you're making a theory that's like in Westeros, it doesn't really have that much to do with the story. You have a lot more leeway. Like a world-building theory. If you're making theories about Ulthos or Southern Sothorios, you can kind of go ham. Because it's really not part of the story. So you don't have this restriction of, well, why would Dario be from Jupiter? What the heck does that, how does that serve the story at all? It seems pretty random. Well, that's, it is awfully random. <laughs> In fact, Sean <laughs> pulled that literally out of his bass there, which is the point. So that wouldn't fit, like if there's a reason that Dar well, Dario, you know, that, there's that one time he got cut and his blood was green. So maybe he's an alien. <laughs> so, no, I mean, <laughs> that would at least be something, but... <laughs> I would more think lizard than alien, but still, you know. So there has to be, well, there doesn't have to be, but there should be, if you want it to be considered accurate or have a chance of coming true, should fit the story. And now, of course, fit the story, what does that mean? I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of different takes on what fit the story means. So that's one of those things where we just have to give our opinion and agree or not. And then, like you said, Sean, it has to, it has to make sense within the context of what's happening as well. Like narratively, thematically, whether it's true or not is going to have some bearing on what the author is aiming for. Again, using the Jupiter example, like why on earth would George do that? It just is just so bizarre yeah. and so weird. Now that's, of course, a very extreme example. You know, something that's a little, a little closer to textually supported but still pretty crazy is like the Tyrian time-traveling fetus theory. That it does have the slightest bit of textual support, more so than <laughs> Dario being from Jupiter. <laughs> but ultimately, those interpretations fit better when framed with things other than time travel, <laughs> right? There's a God of Good Rules there now. And then, of course, the, the final rule, like I said at the beginning, is just is fun. And this goes both ways. It's a double-edged sword. Don't ruin someone else's fun by being too hard on their theory. But also don't expect people to accept your theory if it's more on the fun side and less on the evidentiary side. Be nice is kind of what I'm saying. But have, be nice, have fun, but do your research. <laughs> I, I was thinking a lot about this and basically the stuff you said. I just want to see if I can say it more, a little more concisely. I think that you need to have the ability for it to be revealed. Sure. That's something I think you need, right? And maybe that kind of fit the story. It's kind of in that realm, right? It needs to matter to what's going on, right? So, yeah. and, and sometimes things can matter in this community that's gotten so big and all the world building from the past George has. Some things that, I don't know, something that Otto Hightower did that might be hard for us to know won't matter to Jon Snow's storyline, but could matter to the fandom as a whole. But anyway, yeah. it needs yeah. to matter on some level, I think. And there needs to be some kind of evidence in the first place, you know, in the writings. And then be fun. And I think if you hit three of those four, you're good. That's my thought. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's, an that's, that's how I think. Yeah, of it. and there's an interesting difference, I think, between creative and imaginative. 
maybe there isn't a huge difference here, but one is like being really creative within the framework. And one is just like letting yeah. your imagination run wild and just Dario's from Jupiter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, what? Well, yeah, I wish I could remember. I heard a quote one time. It said, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it was something along the lines of, Art benefits from restrictions or something mm. like that. Like, you know, having to work within certain limitations generates creativity. Right. Like, like you wouldn't want to combine like four different painting styles in one painting. Maybe you would, but it would be really hard to pull that off, you know. But even if you did, that's your limitation. I have to use these four painting styles. Okay, yeah, let me point. get creative with that. Good point. You know? good point. But it might be more difficult if you said, use any style you want. You might not know where to start. Yeah. Or, you know, the analysis paralysis. Yeah, you might like... If you're trying to write music with no time signature, I mean, I guess you could get pretty creative with melodies or something, but having no time signature might not sound musical <laughs> when you're done. Yeah. You know? Imagine like a restaurant where there's three things on the menu versus like the Cheesecake Factory, where you have a literal book. I don't know yeah. what the heck to order. <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> that, yeah. All right, let's get started. From Steve Van Pruyen, he says, what if Young Griff, the current, you know, some people call him Fagon, there's a lot of, this guy has a lot of nicknames, is actually Aegon VI? And how would that impact the story or the endgame? Steve says he doesn't actually think that he's legit, but what if he is? And what would that mean? And how would Varus and Illyrio do anything? What would that affect them? Or how would we view them differently? My first take is I don't think it would affect things that much because it would affect the readers a lot. We would be like, whoa, okay, that's really interesting because we're invested in this ident- in the identity of this character. But in world, I don't think it makes much difference because it's not going to be proved one way or the other. No one's going to ever have definitive proof within the story other than maybe a brand or like Virus and Illyria know that this is a fraud. Like they know that they're perpetrating a fraud. Maybe a few other people have figured it out because they were there. But there's no way to prove that across the world. There's no DNA test. Even if there was a DNA test, I mean, there'd, there'd be people who doubted the results. Strictly speaking, the DNA test of riding a dragon could have some okay. great significance. Okay, whether, yeah, but point. again, even if you had Targaryen and Valyrian blood, you could fail to ride a dragon. But if you don't have enough Targaryen, Valyrian blood, you could fail to ride a dragon when you would think he would be able to. So that is one way I could see it coming to play. Certainly but. would convince people one way. If he did ride or yeah. failed to ride, that would certainly, a lot of people would make their decision based on the result of, of that. Mm-hmm. Even though that shouldn't necessarily be conclusive, it it would be, you know, especially for something like this, which needs some very definitive visual thing. If you're trying to convince people to follow you, if you're trying to convince people you're the king and someone else isn't, and you're going to go to war over it, he's going to need to ride a dragon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they, Maybe he could have got away with it if there weren't dragons. But now that there are, it's kind of this extra level of proof that's going to be required. <laughs> Nina writes, what Varus wants, I think, is to craft the perfect king from scratch to avoid what he might see as the errors and mistakes of past Targaryen kings. If he can have Aegon raised to understand the hardship and struggles of common people, then as a king, he can theoretically empathize with those same struggles and avoid ruling them in a way that ignores these concerns. Like he would have lived through some of the same things they would and then would be able to sympathize and would thus hopefully rule with that in mind. And it doesn't actually matter if he's a Targaryen, if he can do that, if he can pull those things off. Because within a no, in a non-dragon world, which was what Varys and Lyria were planning for, because they didn't see dragons returning as part of their plan, then they didn't have to worry about the whole, like, well, well, this real test of dragon blood occur to throw our whole thing off. They didn't see that coming. And they still probably aren't that worried about it because they wanted to marry Danny to Aegon and so far aren't necessarily aware that 
that probably won't happen. They probably still think they can pull that off. As far as how we'll see them differently, I don't think we'll see them differently either because I think most of us are kind of already at least, if not already on board with thinking he's not really Rhaegar's and Elia's son. That's already my headcanon that they're pulling a, a fraud off. If he really is Aegon, this really is Rhaegar's and Elia's kid, that would be a big surprise. I'd be like, wow, Varys is even more forward thinking than I thought because he saw this child's murder coming, which wasn't that hard to predict. I mean, it's pretty normal to murder the blood of the previous regime. So that's not a super like Varus seeing the future kind of thing. No, that's, yeah. Maybe more credit to his ability to maneuver the situation than predict the situation. Yeah, because he did have to think about it even farther ahead. Like, where did this other baby come from? That part of the plan couldn't have been done on the fly. Like, you got to find a child and replace the babies. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's talk Elia into it, which might not be that hard if, you tell her, well, your baby's about to be killed. Here's a way to save him. You know, that that part might actually not be so hard, but she might. But you also have to get you. the child, talk Illy into it, and keep all that secret. Yeah. Right. So, so lots of, yeah. Logistics are pretty and, difficult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's always been a big argument against him being legit, but not the virus seeing it coming part, just the actual swapping the child. This reminds me a little bit, especially the way we approached it, of a theory I had early on. When I was first getting into Game of Thrones, oh. I had this idea that. Littlefinger or maybe Vars or someone might be able to piece together that Jon Snow is Rhaegar's son. Yeah. They might absolutely. be able to... But even if they did, okay, now what? Littlefinger goes to Cersei and says, actually, Jon Snow's the real king. So step aside. You know, How like, prove that? What does yeah. Littlefinger do with this information? <laughs> How does he prove it to anyone? How does it change anyone's opinions? Would Jon even accept it? I guess maybe he might be able to convince Sansa. Some... some individual person that trusts him. I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I thought about it a lot at the beginning, but eventually it's like, yeah, I just don't know how it's going to matter. Even if, even if it's vaguely like the show where they reveal a secret marriage, well, that's polygamous. Was that marriage even valid? You know, like I, I yeah. would say no. I mean, yes, the Targaryen exceptionalism would, would argue yes, but it's not like a hard and fast rule that, that it's just like, oh, clearly the law says yes. It might, in conjunction with some other things, start to matter. But those other things might matter so much it doesn't matter that Littlefinger figured it out. Yeah. Like if John rides a dragon or something. Or like Bran sees an individual. Well, Bran knows. There. And that's how we know as readers. But how does he communicate that to everybody else? Oh, yeah, sure. Sure, tree yeah. boy. Yeah, we believe you. Yeah, yeah. right. Tell, tell us more. You know, <laughs> They don't believe it. It's... it's yeah, it's difficult to reveal it as a truth and it's difficult to see the impact it would have. And there's not quite really any evidence for it either. It's like it's struggling yeah. on all the on all accounts. It's for know. the readers. It's for us. It's for our reaction, yeah. you yeah. know, I think, which is a lot. But yeah, in world, they'll be like... They can add a lot of irony or tragedy to things when we know something, yeah. even if it doesn't affect the plot. That's it very true. affects how we feel about the plots. Jacob Hofstadter says, Dane City did Arthur or... And, and or Ashara survived the Tower of Joy and Starfall? I would say no. It's a big, it's a popular theory. There's a lot of, there's room for it. There's certainly not evidence for it, but there's room for it. You know, you can't, there's no bodies, obvious bodies for either of them. There is probably a body for Arthur. There were enough cairns to support it, but the number of cairns could have included someone else. There may have been, uh, you know, there would have been maid servants and other people there, maybe a squire. Like, how did the Kingsguard put their armor on, right? There's other people there. I'm imagining that. that Chloe from Girls Gone Canon is just going to jump out of the computer and, like, <laughs> slap you across the face right now. It's like, she's in 
She's at Greywater Watch. No, actually, that theory is listed here as well. So we'll get to, we'll get to that. We'll we'll represent Chloe's angle. Maybe not the way she wants me to, but <laughs> it will have its day uh, <laughs> or its moment, and it's coming soon. I here. think literally by her calling herself a truther, she's recognizing that this is a conspiracy. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah, truther means kinda, conspiracy theorist. Yeah. It's funny how that quirk of English. <laughs> What's funny is I have a special place in my heart for the Arthur Dane is alive theory because I used to believe it. I think longtime listeners of of this show of History of Westeros know this because I've I've mentioned it before, but I don't I don't think I've mentioned it in a while. But I was a believer in it in part because of George was pretty heavily influenced by the series, The Dragonbone Chair, Memory Sorrow and Thorn. And there is a character who is pretty much Arthur Dane who turns out to be alive <laughs> after all these years. <laughs> Ever thought he was dead and it would be a really similar kind of thing. He has a meteorite sword. <laughs> you know, he's like the perfect knight, like really noble and charismatic and chivalrous and, you know, uncommonly honorable. And yeah. So I was like, see, it's like, no, George isn't copying this like word for word. He's not copying it at all. It's just influence. It's like here and there, there's a tidbit or a nod to Tad Williams. It's not. Yeah. So I was going way too far, but I do appreciate looking back on a good example of me not following the the quote unquote rules of theory crafting there like just because it happened in another series like that's not even doesn't make sense at all <laughs> like george breaks tropes all the time so if he's going to borrow that's almost like, a reason for it to not be true yes. if it happened somewhere else yeah. yeah you're right like it's more likely to not be true given that like it, he fooled those of us that read that and like into thinking that he was doing the same thing I didn't fully give up on the idea Arthur Dane was alive until A Dance with Dragons because that that's the point at which he would be revealed. Like, okay, here's young Griff with all these guardians around him, the people that fled to protect him because he's the true king. Well, then where's Arthur Dane? Like, that's where he would be, right? But he still isn't revealed? Okay, like, it was probably never that good of a theory in the first place, but it really got stabbed in the heart by his lack <laughs> of presence with John Connington and Halden Halfmaster and, and all those other folk, like he would have been with them. <laughs> That's where the king, with the king that, that he's supposed to be guarding. But no, but no. I wonder if Barristan appearing to Danny is closer to the realization that Great Warrior was still alive after all. Yes, mm-hmm. you're right. And I didn't catch that, even though like Storm of Swords had been out by then. It was those three books were out at the time. Feast for Crows wasn't out yet. Feast for Crows didn't really change anything though in that, in that regard. But Dance of Dragons did. So let's turn to Ashara Dane, though. We, that's Arthur. What about Ashara? Ashara, this is even tougher because she jumps out a window, is what we're told. Now, yeah, you could tell a bunch of people a story that someone jumped out a window and meanwhile she snuck away on a boat. But this is one of the things this is why? What's the point? I don't understand why hiding, bringing back the theory that she, maybe she, she's hiding at Greywater Watch. This one, this one begs the question of why. It is answered by the because they people like Ashara Dane and this would be fun. That makes it to me fine. Sure. Totally fine headcanon. I don't see the supporting evidence very strongly though, but it is also one of those. Like ways. is someone trying to kill Ashara Dane? Yeah. Is she like, why is she being hidden? Does she have some secrets that can't be told? Uh, I, what could that secret be? Like, where, how, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And there's so much evidence that she did. Like, there's a lot of reasons why she would have killed herself. Supposedly, she lost a child. Supposedly, she lost a lover, Ned, maybe too permanently. She may have, she might be the reason why Ned killed Arthur, not meaning that she may have revealed where they were. She might be the reason they found the Tower of Joy. That's a little less likely, but it's on the table. It's more likely than her being alive, in my opinion. (laughs) And so she would blame herself. 
Or even if she doesn't blame herself, her famous brother, who she may have been close to, and I don't mean like Jamie Cersei close to, but <laughs> strong relationship, maybe Marjorie, Laura, maybe Eamon Nerys type situation without the abusive older brother involved. Although maybe there was, we don't know if they had an older brother, though they, they surely did actually, because that would have been who inherited Starfall. Like they wouldn't have, if Arthur Dane was the oldest, he probably wouldn't have joined the Kingsguard, right? He would have inherited. So they most likely did have an older brother. Maybe he was abusive. Hey, maybe it's even more like Aemon and Nerys than we thought. <laughs> but anyway, there's a lot of tragedy in Ashara's life and perhaps even more than we're aware of. There's maybe Brandon she was in love with and he died. You know, there's just a lot of things that we didn't even mention. So there's so many reasons why she could have. And it doesn't have to be one. It's the more likely the pile of reasons that created this weight of hurt and sorrow and despair that may have led her to do that. Any one of those things might have been enough, but there's like five reasons that we've all probably seen or read about people who have committed suicide over that reason, and she's got multiples. So to me, that would be a little, maybe too tricky for her to, <laughs> despite the why. Like, I can't, I don't know why. Can you, can you guys think of a why? Like, what's the, what will be the purpose? Maybe if she could reveal some things. I see... Christina K in the chat says, no one can harangue Ashara for the truth about the Tower of Joy if they think she's dead. Just That's a good point. Just keep a secret. <laughs> just, 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 just Having her dead may serve more narrative purpose. Yeah. Because then it keeps it more of a secret. Only someone like Bran can, or yeah. maybe one of the Squire or Willa could tell us. Yeah. But no, I'd say I'm pretty down on it. Yeah. Personally, if we were if we were doing this like a, an actual trial or a panel where we like voted yay or nay, I would say nay. Yeah, I'll vote nay on... Arthur, any, I guess we can do that going forward. There was no yay or nay on Steve's question of what if Aegon is really Aegon. But this one is, do, do Arthur or Ashara Danes live still? And I'd say no to both of them. No to both as well. You agree, Sean? I think so, yeah. Okay. Hey, let's do that I think no, I mean, I'm a, Yeah, let's say what we think. I concur. Why didn't I just... <laughs> 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 oh, I Connie Gonzalez Super says, Howland Reed saved, in quotes, Ned Stark at the Tower of Joy by doing what bog devils are known for. Howland blew a poison dart at Arthur Dane. Why else bring a little guy like him to a fight? Howland going to hone his magic at the Isle of Faces is similar to Arya going to the House of Black and White to learn skills. Howland Reed could be hiding in plain sight in a glamour. Anyone alive who could still recognize him besides Mira outside of the neck, that is? So there's two parts to this. Let's start with the Arthur Dane part of the Tower of Joy fight, which I mostly wholeheartedly agree with. It doesn't have to be a poison dart. It could be a net or just sneaking up on him. Just sneakiness. Any sort of cleverness. Any a sort poison of... poison blade yeah. or arrow or... Something in that genre of Krannic Man tricks. Absolutely. I love it. It's like a little David Goliath kind of thing. Like the unstoppable, unbeatable knight, even though he's not evil like Goliath. <laughs> he's still just insurmountable, it seems like. But something that... A weapon he's not expecting or a different style of combat, not knightly combat fits really well. Yes, magic is possible, but there's not any reason to think that when we have a simpler answer that really, really fits well. Yes, it's possible. I won't cross it off the list of a brief, like, attempt to warg him that froze him, kind of like Hodor struggling when Bran was trying to take him over. There's not any evidence that, that Howland Reed is strong enough to do that or a skin changer at all. It's one of the things, well, yeah, it's possible, but I think this is just such a better fit. Net or poison or sneakiness. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it just being outnumbered, it's something that frustrates me all the time in TVs and movies when you see like one person fighting five people, but he only really fights one person at a time. 
Yeah. If any of those people just went behind and tripped them, <laughs> there was a rocket at their head, or there's a million ways when you're outnumbered. Yeah. It's a reason why being outnumbered matters, you know. And it was three, it's three versus seven in the books, unlike in the show, it's two versus seven. So that was a little weirder. But in the show, it's three, and they're all like heavily armored versus these guys who've been trudging through the desert and they're not all warriors. Like, like Alan Reed, yeah, one on one facing Arthur Dane, no chance he's going to win. But in this group, exactly. in like a D&D party system, he serves well as the guy that can like circle around and do the backstab, you know. Now, as far as this other part, if he's still alive, hiding in plain sight, yeah, I mean, we don't have any reason to think he's dead. That's true. Like there's never, like he's, Ned never said he was dead. In fact, we have every reason to think he is alive and every reason to think that he's gonna appear on screen at some point. It kind of seems weird if this guy's alive and never pops up on page. And I'm pretty sure George has hinted that he will. We don't have any reason to think he's hiding either, though, do we? No. Why can't he just be at home? Like? Yeah, he could be at home. They did attack the Ironborn at Moat Kalen. That may have been under his direction. I mean, he is the Lord of Greywater Watch. You would guess that any fighting going on in his domain would probably have his okay, if not his direct command behind it. So we've maybe seen evidence of his staying busy in that sense. So maybe he was trying to harass Roose Bolton's men when they were walking through and other things like that. But yeah, he, he does feel kind of like a more of an endgame character. Maybe someone who explains some things, maybe someone who corrects us on a few points and or yet, maybe surprises us. And yes, disease. George did say we will meet Howland Reed, but not in the next book. Whatever. Oh, so Dream of Spring, Howland Reed. Okay. Well, to be fair, to be clear, he said not in the next book in 2000. Oh. Okay. So, <laughs> so we might need him in Winds of Winter. Okay. Winter. So it could be okay, Winds of yeah. Winter and or Dream of Spring. Yeah. <laughs> And Thanks, the last, last part of the question, is there anyone alive who could still recognize him besides Mira outside of the neck? Yeah, there would have to be. There would have to be some other of Ned's bannermen. Mm, off the top of my head. Well, Manderley is probably not long for this world, but if he's still technically alive as of this moment, he was at the Battle of the Trident. Any of the lords that were around during, during Robert's Rebellion who were Northern Lords would know Howland Reed and would probably recognize him on sight. And there's probably some others because he was at the Tournament of Harrenhal. Yeah, he's not like a unknown figure by any means. He's been out there, out and about multiple times, just maybe not recently. And it is interesting that he didn't come to, that he didn't send a lot of men to, to rob, but, you know, he, his men aren't that type of fighter in the first place. So he sent his children to Bran. That was his big contribution. So yeah, I'd say there's lots of people who could recognize him, which is one of the reasons why when people theorize about him being out there, they kind of have to put a glamour on him. <laughs> Because like the theory has to involve him not being recognized. And there's too many people that would recognize him. One theory is that he's the Sparrow, the High Sparrow. I don't really buy that. Yeah, I guess once you think he needs a glamour, then he could be anybody. And exactly. then it gets a little more then it gets a little crazy. Uh, tinfoily. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this, the High Sparrow is a small man who's like muddy and, you know, there's... But that's not very specific. I mean, a small... A short guy who's muddy isn't really... <laughs> There's a lot of people. It seems like too much for someone who is the lord of a land to abandon those responsibilities, start a new career, work the ranks up to the top, all in secret. Well, the idea is the idea is to for revenge for what happened to Ned because there was there was a done in in the name of God, done in the name of the seven. He was executed on Baylor. So yeah, it doesn't like doesn't sound like the the person that how theory from from Nedland's shippers. Yeah, (laughs) how Ned so passionate about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> all right so i'm gonna vote that yes on the basic like sneaky 
non-magical killing of Arthur Dane and know that he's hiding in plain sight with a glamour. I don't think that, I don't think glamour magic is really associated with the old gods either. We haven't seen that so much. Glamour is... Dancing's enjoined. Glamours are more of a manipulation of light, which it's a little more the province of R'hllor and fire wielders, which old gods magic doesn't seem to have a lot of that. Maybe another argument against it. All right, Hassan Mahmoud from our Facebook group says, Ashar and Howland Reed met and fell in love at the tournament and Howland deflowered her, not a Stark. Ashar is alive in the neck as Howland's wife and Mira's mother. And Sir Barristan Selmy will reveal either Tyrion or Jamie and Cersei or Aerys's kids. Okay, well, that's two separate theories there. Let's talk about them separately. Ashar being alive in the neck, well, we just kind of discussed, I think it's Yet a again. better story if Ashar <laughs> is dead because of the tragedy and, you know... Yet again, Chloe's hand reaches from the screen. <laughs> yeah. I feel her reaching you. the cold, icy hand of Chloe coming for me. <laughs> let me <laughs> choke the light. Let me, me. let me tell you another thing that I think about when, not, not so much for theories, but often connected or, you know, the big crossover and a Venn diagram of theories and secrets. Dude, I'm pretty sure it's a Benjamin Franklin quote that three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. That... Something like this will require so many people to keep a secret that even if you trusted them all, some people was just someone's just gonna make a mistake. Someone's just gonna like accidentally reveal something or say something or get drunk or be seen in some place. It's just really hard to keep two lords, you know, two elite family people getting married. There's so many pieces of that that would have to be kept secret for so long. I just if to me that that's too much of a requirement for this theory to be true. Maybe this is a little cynical, but maybe it's just... But I also think this is just how George wrote. I don't think George is the type to write the like really beautiful princess like kissing the frog man. That's the, kind of what this feels like. You know, like he's this le- lesser, quote unquote lesser, not in my mind, but in the confines of his society. And why would this incredibly beautiful woman go for this guy? Like, yeah, it's like that sounds like fairy tale stuff to me. Like maybe again, maybe that's being cynical. But <laughs> adding to the difficulty of keeping it secret, this would be such a piece of gossip. That, yeah. You know, how would yeah. Nina also points out that it's lit? It's it, there's a Barrison remembers all the people Ashar danced with. He's not one of them. Not that that by itself, meaning Howland, not Barrison himself. That not that that is a huge negative piece of evidence, but it's something like you think if George wanted to suggest it, hint at it, this would be a really if, easy way to be like, why yes, would he not yeah. include that one? Like, that's a very strong. If he had included that one, we might give this more credence. Yeah. Like, well, okay, you know. And of course, Sean, you might not even be aware of this part. We know the name of his wife. It's Gianna Reed. So it's like, so of course you could take an assumed name up and of course she would change her last name to Reed when you get married. But again, just, I'm not sure why. But yeah, I I think it's, it would maybe take away some of the tragedy too. It's like, oh, this whole sad thing of her... Not that we need tragedy, but I think it's it's kind of a beautiful tragedy since it's fiction. Like in the real world, be like, no, I wish, I do wish she's dead. Oh, I hope she really is dead. <laughs> no, in the real world, like, yeah, I hope she's alive somewhere, having a happy life. But <laughs> anyway, Amy Landtrip, Amy Blackfire says, the Tyrion Targaryen theory, I don't believe it, but I want to see what everyone thinks. There are a couple people that brought up variations on the theory, Michael Przaki, Przaki, sorry if I said your name wrong, probably did. Dwarfism is actually a Targaryen trait, so A plus J equals T. But we're just getting started here. There's other aspects to this theory here that I'll get to, but this is the Targaryen, Tyrion part of it. I don't know where that idea comes from. Dwarfism is actually a Targaryen trait. I don't know of any other 
Targaryen dwarfs. So I'm not sure that works. It depends on when you asked me this question, what my answer would have been. If you had asked me the Tyrion Targaryen theory prior to A Dance of Dragons, I would have said maybe 10%, 15%. When Dance of Dragons came out, I thought the chances shot up significantly, a good 10, 15% more because of Barristan randomly thinking about Ashara and, or not Ashara, but Ares and Joanna and things like that. And George going out of his way to point out that Tyrion's birth does not line up, or sorry, Jamie and Cersei's births do not line up with the timing of, of Ares and Joanna's proximity, which narrows it down to if any of those children came from Ares, it could only be Tyrion, not Jamie and Cersei, which for a long time was a very popular theory. Jamie and Cersei were the children of Ares and Joanna. It would be a bookend to Jamie being a kinslayer, killing his own father. It would mean Tyrion and Jamie both killed their own parents. I mean, that's kind of r- rude to say Tyrion killed his mother being born. People could say that within the confines of the story. It would also mean that like Cersei and Aerys being related would make a certain amount of sense given how she's getting madder and madder, especially the paranoia like she has and the wildfire. So there is a lot of evidence for that circumstantially. But once you get into the like, could they have been together at the same time? It's kind of like, eh, that, that George threw a lot of cold water on that. Now, we know the cold water doesn't put out wildfire. With this theory, I think this is one of the most loaded theories of, of all the theories we have here in terms of meaning for the story and how people interpret it. Like, I think a lot of times people are against this theory because they think it flies in the face of the of the themes, the symbol of, of like the meaning of Tyrion. And I just plain disagree with y'all. I don't think that's true. I think, sure, like you you can think that it, it takes the meaning out of it, but I think it adds a different sort of meaning that is meaningful on its own. But I think this is a particularly interesting theory. Yeah, that it is a really interesting theory because whether no matter what side you take or even if you don't take a side, what makes it so interesting is that it's one of the most passion-engendering theories in the entire fandom. People have strong opinions on it. Some people really, really hate it. <laughs> Some yeah. people think it's a pretty good idea. Some people think it's entirely possible. I've seen some people, other podcasters whose opinions I really trust who have gone on record saying they think it's more than more likely than not. I'm not sure if they would still hold that opinion because like I just said, my opinion has fluctuated quite a bit over the years. Nina's an example of someone who really, really doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I'm someone who... Cur- currently, I say the odds are very low. Using Dance of the Dragons as an example, of, there wasn't. it added some evidence to it. I hate to use the TV show as, a, as evidence, but I think the TV show is evidence here. It didn't happen on TV. And if George had told them that that was his plan, they would have, they would have done something with that. Probably they might have been like, ah, nah, we're just not going to do that. They might have done that. It's entirely possible. But remember, there was that time when they said there were three things George told us that blew our minds. One was, you know, Shireen being burned. One was, I don't even remember what the other two were at this point. But how could that not have been a mind-blowing reveal to them? if he had told them that. So I think that really threw even more cold wars. That really su- subtracted a substantial... As much as I don't like to use a TV show as evidence, I have, well, I have a hard time not using it for my evidence My counterpoint here. to that is that I do think there are major plot things that George has not decided. Yeah, maybe he just hadn't decided. You're like, right. I think it's there still are open. things where he's like, I'm going to put the groundwork in so that I can decide later on, and there's foreshadowing, there's clues for either way. I, th- I do think he does that sometimes. I think you're right, yeah. I don't know that this is one of those times, but add, add that. For me, I'm not passionately against the theory at all. I'm not passionately for the theory, but I, am, I, I do find myself more defensive over it when people say that they think it kind of 
flies in the face of the idea of Tyrion is Tywin's son, because I think it has a whole extra level of meaning that, that makes me think again of like John as Ned's son and Tyrion as Tywin's son, that like that is his most true child, even if it isn't actually his child. Like there's a lot of meaning there. Nature nurture, yeah. Yeah. Which again mm-hmm. isn't me saying I'm going to bat for that theory or anything like that, or I think it's the <laughs> most likely, but I don't think that it necessarily is like thematically misled or, or wrong. Yeah, I agree. I very strongly agree with you there, Shay. I think that it's borderline offensive to say that it undermines the yes the work of Tywin and Tyrion because if it's like if he's adopted I mean an adopted son is a son adopted yeah. child is a child that like I think you are insulting adoptive relationships if you say that undermines that relationship I Cause, agree because it's nature nurture so I think you have to be real careful with that you can hold that opinion but maybe be cautious with how you word that out in the world because lots of people are, are adopted and you don't want to insult you want to say their family, their parents aren't their real parent. Like, that's rude, right? You know what I mean? And that is kind of what you're implying if you say that. And it's not like we need that piece of evidence. There's plenty of other things against this theory (laughs) besides that. There's lots of reasons why Tyrion isn't a Targaryen. So there are some why he might be. But yes, we don't need that. We don't need to bring in... And and that that really violates the fun rule here is to like get too real with it and talk and, and, and trample on the nature of adoptive parentage. Even if you're not doing it on purpose, which no one is. No one's doing that on purpose. No one's out there like, yeah, screw you, adopted kid. No yeah, yeah, no that. one is. Yeah, absolutely it, not. It's I, accidental. So yeah. I'm not trying to come down too hard on anyone who's done that. But Just maybe. That is. But when you become realize that you might think twice about doing That is yeah. kind of why I, I tread carefully when it comes to theories about nettles being a dragon seed as yes. well, because it's also very loaded subject and theory wise. In terms of like, well, just because she's not white skinned Targaryen, that means she can't be a dragon. Like, th- there's a few theories I feel like. Even if you have a lot of, of evidence for why you think that, sometimes you have to tread carefully with why you're arguing it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's why, uh, again, that's why I think the fun rule is really important. <laughs> you know. One other thing we touched on a little bit here that also spins through my mind a lot when I think about theories, especially in this world of Martin, is that we know for sure that there's all sorts of stuff that he planted seeds for, but just didn't fruit. You know, that mm-hmm. like, I think there's a, you have to, I think sometimes the evidence piece, right, of a theory will be pretty strong in the first book only. Yes. Does that makes yeah, sense. We- I wonder even how much George realizes or intended to have this, this ability to turn it into a red herring, something he started off with an idea and he set some clues or foreshadowing or however you want to describe it. And then down the road, he's like, well, that conflicts with this. That's going to go in a direction I didn't mean to. Never mind. And so people started forming theories in the first few books around that, but he wasn't following up with it. And so then maybe we feel like it was a red herring, but maybe it was just a decision that changed his mind. But I do think sometimes it justifies a lot of theories people have that don't seem to make sense because George did give us clues to them. Yeah. But I think sometimes you just got to let it go and you realize he's not doing it anymore. (laughs) One example... We we see proof of that in in the original 1993 letter. Yep. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Really like one, one of my favorite examples of that is just all the ice imagery around Cersei very early on. There's a ton of like iciness, coldness, and the, but later that shifts to fire. Like she becomes passionate and hot and wildfiery and paranoid and all these things that you associate with flame. And yeah, it's just like it feels like a change. I don't know. I don't know what the cold was ever pointing to. Maybe that's less like a theory than more just like how he wanted to 
show her character. But either way, it's a it seemed to have been a. There's all the imagery about like looking like a king for Jamie too. Is oh, that's example a, be- yeah, that's a better like, example. Where like yeah, he, yeah. He, in the in the original letter, Jamie does take the throne. He murders his way to the throne and yeah. blames Tyrion. We still um, get the blaming Tyrion part, but not from Jamie. <laughs> yeah. And we still have Jamie. That's why Jamie is sitting on the Iron Throne with the sword, and that's why he bothered to climb it. And that's why Ned was upset with that. It's like, why did he climb all the way up? Especially when you realize how tall that throne is. Like, why did he climb all the way up there? Yeah. George would yeah. probably not have written it that way if he did it over again. He probably wouldn't have had Jamie climb yeah. the throne because he's not going to have Jamie climb the throne <laughs> in the <laughs> metaphorical way. Yeah. One last bit from Michael P's theory here. He suggests that the Targaryens are represented by Hot Pie because he's actually the dwarf Aegon V. <laughs> And he's going to wield the red rolling pin of heroes and claim the Iron Throne. I kind of like the idea of hot pie. You know, it's fire. You know, (laughs) it's not fire and steel or fire and blood. It's fire and fruit. (laughs) Fire and pie. Fire and dough. Mm, I would rather that king. I'm telling you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hot pie king is better than Ares. I mean, better than Robert. (laughs) Better than a lot of people. Turn all the swords into ovens and start making bread and not war. <laughs> there is a Tyrion chimera theory sticking with Tyrion stuff. And the idea between the idea with a chimera, okay, so chimera is a real thing in the world, which means I'm not talking about the D monster. I'm talking about the chimerism, which is when you can have two like genome sets combined. Have you ever seen a uh the mo- one I've seen the most common is cats that look like they're two different cats mashed together. Like left half is like a white cat and the right half is like a calico cat and their eyes are different color. That's a chimera cat because they have like the genome for, a, I'm probably using the wrong terms here, a white cat and a genome for, and they got combined in like the eggs combined or the zygotes combined in the womb or something like that. So it had elements of both. It's caused some real weird troubles out in the real world. There was a person that got DNA tested and, and accused of a crime. And then later they were DNA tested separately. And it was a completely different DNA because they have chimerism. So there's literally two sets of DNA in their body. This was a po- this is a popular theory amongst people that really, really don't like the Tyrion Targaryen theory because they can you can explain it other ways or they don't like Targaryens having real dragon blood. That theory has fallen off, the anti-Targaryen dragon blood, because fire and blood and the world of ice and fire just provided so much additional evidence for something magical's going on with the Targaryen bloodline. You can't explain it all with just genetics and real-world medicine explanations. I mean, Tyrion's got one colored eye of each. He's got the, the his hair is a little strange with the black, a little bit of black in it with the white. So there he does kind of seem like a candidate for real-world chimerism. There is a possibility. Now I don't know enough about the medicine, the science behind it, but I wouldn't assume George does either to get to be 100%, especially given when he wrote it, you know, in the 90s, there probably was, he couldn't just go on Google and look up chimerism. You know what I mean? Now he could. So George, maybe not having it perfectly accurate to chimerism is not necessarily an argument against it. It might be a concept he was familiar with or even read an encyclopedia article about it, which also would have been less informed in 1990 than it is in 2023, but yeah. In fact, that's one of the reasons I use the Chimera cat as an example. George is not only a cat person, but these are the Lannisters. So they are cats mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. So that kind mm-hmm. of fits as well. That's not exactly strong evidence, but it's a little, you know, adds a little to it, you know. Ultimately, this is one of those things where it's like, if he is or isn't, does it really affect the story? No, no. not really. It's kind of like the whether Aegon is really Rhaegar's son or just some random child that had blonde hair and blue eyes. It could be true, and it's interesting. 
probably doesn't have a big effect on the story, and that may mean we makes it kind of in the and, and also of not getting an answer. Also, very hard to review. <laughs> How, what, yeah, some mace are going to come along. It's like actually, Tyrion is a chimera. <laughs> okay, next chapter. Like, all right. <laughs> now he is absolutely a chimera, like thematically, the way he's changed sides. Been lion. He's been dragon. He's been maybe a little bit wolfy when he was, you know, kind of he's friends with John and that friendship may be rekindled. Maybe he'll be friends with Davos. He'll have a little stag there or I don't know. So there's, that's like a chimera has these different parts of it. So maybe that is more what some people have noticed as a theme and they're taking it more to a literal angle, which isn't necessarily wrong, but I see it more of as a metaphorical thing. Describe the type of character Tyrion is where he's all these different, personalities rolled into one or he isn't uh, he doesn't have his foot in one camp or he over the course of the story he fights for several different causes different animals sigils okay one from adeline here adeline sansa is going through the process of slowly recovering memories of being sexually assaulted by sandor Clegane during the battle of the blackwater she blocked out the memory in the aftermath but as she grows older and stronger her memories are becoming clearer she works with, Adeline works with survivors of sexual violence and the way Sansa talks and thinks about Clegane reminds her of how a lot of survivors try to process their trauma before they have support. The bloody cloak he leaves behind makes me think of the way they check sheets after a new couple's bedding ceremony to check for blood. Okay, a lot of strong points here. I certainly have no insight on working with sexual assault survivors, certainly not to the level you do, Adeline, doing so directly. So I can't comment on that. I can take your word for that and say, yeah, if you say so, I believe you 100%. Still, though, I'm a little skeptical. This is, again, sort of like the Chimera thing where it seems more like suggestive of the way she thinks and feels and maybe what she wants out of the future, maybe symbolic rather than literal. Another big clue is, maybe the best clue for me, is that when Sandor is trying to con Arya into finishing him off, he says, I should have raped her. He doesn't say I did. And if he really wanted Arya to kill him, he would just straight up say he would have lied and say he didn't even lie to say that. Like he could have lied to really get Arya to finish him off because he was insulting her, cursing at her, being like, you coward. I should have killed you. I should have raped your sister. I should have done all these things just to get Arya to finish him off because he's dying and he's in pain. And Arya won't do it. I think if he really did it, he would have said so to really get her to literally stick the knife in. So to me, that might be the best piece of counter evidence. What do y'all think? I agree with that. Yeah. I, I do. I think that without Sandor having made a statement, I would say, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to read it as that, I, I don't, I, I think you could. But I think Sandor having said that to Arya when he has all the reason in the world to say the truth means it's very unlikely. I think it's interesting to think about. I hadn't considered it at all. So I, I definitely thought about it when I read this theory. And I didn't even think of the specific detail of how he might have goaded Arya. But I, but what made me suspicious was Martin seems to be presenting him as someone who good isn't quite the right word, but is good in a way that knights are supposed to be, even though knights aren't. And so having him do that takes away from what he seems to represent yeah, overall. You're right. Making sense? him a rapist would be really counter to his character. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. I mean, not counter to his character, but counter to that message of that character. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think, and I, and I do think that he's on some kind of redemption arc. And if it were revealed later that he had done that, ooh it would be just kind of impossible to like him. Not kind of. I mean, it would be yeah, like, yeah. like, nope, <laughs> yeah. that's it for him. <laughs> so much for Sandor. <laughs> Go ahead and die now. Yeah, let's, let's, let's hope for an awful death for him. 
Nina writes a really interesting other point to this. It's like the idea of Sansa burying memories is probably setting up something else, which is that she's going to have to face some of the things that she's done. Like she knows now that Lysa, because Lysa admitted it, that John Aaron was poisoned by Littlefinger. And she's going to, and she knows that she was terrible to Jane Poole. Not that she's the one who sent Jane Poole off to be trained by Littlefinger, but she was like, oh, I, Jane's just crying so much. I don't, you know, and that led to her horrible treatment. Like Sansa's not responsible for that, but Sansa could have been way more empathetic, way more and sympathetic. she will feel responsible for she it. She will feel responsible. Whether she actually is. Because that's the kind yeah. of person she is. You're right. So she will take it hard once she realizes she's got to face these memories or she's got to face some of the things that she's done. And that will make her, I mean, I think a lot of people will really feel better about her have, if this goes well, which I think it probably will. Because it will show a lot of more, like even more maturity. Sansa's already, that's a big part of her arc is learning and growing and maturing losing the naivete and fairy tale beliefs that she used to have. Almost becoming cynical in the long run, perhaps. And it might be heading that way. And if this is be one, one of those things, like if she looks back on her childhood and free frames it all, and is like, whoa, I made so many mistakes. I did all these things wrong. I'm determined not to do these things again. Determined to do better. Determined to lead well, etc. I mean, I think we would like to see that. I think that would be great. And so that's a, I, I like that idea by Nina a lot, that this is what, that's what's being set up is Sansa coming to terms with and as well as maybe what telling about her father's plans and spilling, telling Cersei about her father's plans to leave, which she may not ever figure that out, but she may very well be like, oh no, I told Cersei. And then that led to, oh no, she may just have that dawn on her one day that, yeah, that'll be really awful for her. But it, another potential angle is it, it might be a flaw that she continues to yeah. romanticize these nights, even when they're awful. Like yeah. People don't want to face their trauma. Yeah. Like it would be very human for her to just be like, can't face that. I can't face that. Given how much else she has to deal with, too. It's not like she's just sitting at home yeah. with everything else fine. And she's like, okay, <laughs> my life is good. Let's let's look back. You know, no, yeah, she's got plenty of plenty of other negative stimuli coming her way. All right, Rutherford the Brave, the smallest, most non-consequential theory. If in Winds of Winter or A Dream of String, we come by some yet unnamed cousin or uncle of House Hightower, there's a good chance he'll be named Franklin. There are three. Franklins that he could find in Westeros. Two from the series proper and one from the Mystery Night. I think that George is making a Grateful Dead joke here. It's no secret that George is a big deadhead. True, true. And there's a very well-known dead song called Franklin's Tower, which George would definitely be familiar with. The song contains references to the dichotomy of ice and fire as well, so it's thematically on point. I really should have listened to this song before the episode. <laughs> I meant to kind of meant to do that and I forgot. Anyway, back to Westeros. It turns out that two-thirds of those above-named Franklins in our story have names that rhyme with the song title. Franklin Fowler and Franklin Flowers, which I pointed out last week in the Bastard Squad episode. It's sort of like George made this joke in A Feast for Crows and either thought it was funny enough to do again in A Dance with Dragons or forgot that he already did it. Additionally, all three Franklins are associated <laughs> with towers. Franklin Fowler is the Lord of Skyreach. Lofty Towers is... World of Ice and Fire. Franklin Frey is a knight of the twins, or better said, the twin towers of House Frey. And uh, Franklin Flowers isn't actually a... Isn't, doesn't have a tower association, but he does, you know, throw the maester out the tower <laughs> at Griffin's Roost. So there's, there's something. And then Hightower. So that's why the theory is leading to a Franklin Hightower, because <laughs> that's the, all, the tallest of all the towers. So that is fun. This is my... This early on in our trek through these theories here is my pick for the most original theory. Yeah. So I've never heard this theory before. It's 100% true that George is into the Grateful Dead. It's 100% true that he has seen lots of Grateful Dead shows. There's a oh, there's yeah. video of him like backstage at a dead show. <laughs> yeah. Just like bopping, just like 
having a good time. Werewood is Bob Ware, one of the members of the Grateful Dead. Total reference to that. Dark Star is a Grateful Dead song. There's a lot. I, I don't even know all the references. Yeah, if you read Armageddon Rag, you really get a, an idea of that. He's real into rock and roll in general and like yeah. music culture and all that. And his, so. his wife, Paris, is also yeah. great the dead. They, they're yeah, deadheads together. I, I get the impression she's way even more passionate about it, but yeah. Yeah, um, uh, you might be right about that. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, you got to bring this to Lady Gwen. Hey. Yeah, Lady Gwen is she's the, aware is the of this. Yeah, she, oh, about this theory. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if she is too. But Lady Gwen is our resident fandom deadhead, I suppose. She's been to a, a lot of dead shows and is quite into them as well. By a lot. I think she's been to like 40 or 50 or something. A lot, a lot, a lot. I think it's kind of implied that like if you're a deadhead who's been to a lot of shows, probably it is like 40 because <laughs> that's like how those yeah. fans go. Yeah. But yeah. Anyways, Rutherford the Brave, the or uh, the originator of this theory, acknowledges that we know the names of pretty much every Hightower in the main line right now. So they, they point out, the yeah, this would probably have to be a cousin. But that's entirely possible. There's definitely Hightower cousins out like, there. Like, come on, House of the Dragon, name one of these other Hightowers. Oh, Franklin. Yeah, like, we're going to see yeah. lots of them there. We could get a Franklin there, yeah. yeah. I think uh, Rutherford will feel so vindicated if it happens. I, I, really, I do like this theory because it <laughs> it's easy to reveal. It, there's lots of evidence for it. it. May not have a big impact on the story, but it's fun. Yeah. So hits three of the four very solidly. How do we know it's Franklin Flowers and not Flowers? Like, <laughs> we've already got rivers and waters. Why not Flowers? Yeah. Also, names like Franklin when it's spelled with the Y, they it just seems unfair. It's like how do you get? Why do you get two names in one? Frank and Lynn. <laughs> that's not fair. Quit there's a lot of names, names like that. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of names like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess. All right. <laughs> One more, then we'll take our, then we'll do our drawing. And then we'll do more. Jess Haggerty says, Dunk started the fire at Summerhall because he saw that Egg was becoming a mad king obsessed with wildfire and the return of the dragons and had to act in that moment. Dunk has always been a champion of the small folk. And when he saw the return, the possibility of the return of dragons to their full power, he knew that it meant nothing but suffering for the masses. He saved Rael and Rhaegar because he felt guilty and hoped he could raise another Targaryen child to truly have the small folk's best interest at heart but died in the fire. Mm, I, mm, yeah, I don't know about that. I think a lot of other people died at Summerhall too. And including a lot of small folk. A lot of innocents. I think there's too many innocent victims here. Now, maybe you can argue that he didn't see it getting that far out of control, but why wouldn't, if he wanted to stop Egg and really wanted to stop Egg, why wouldn't he just stab him? And he says, Lord Commander is Kingsguard. He's got proximity to him. It seems like this seems a little circuitous route to get to what would be just, just kill him straightforward. Like, why do you need to start a fire? Just hide the evidence that he did it? I don't know. I, maybe. But again, that I, I don't think Dunk would you be... Kill a bunch of other people to hide the evidence? Yeah, I don't think Dunk... It doesn't Dunk seem would, in line with Dunk. I yeah. agree, yeah. I do agree that Dunk could have been very troubled by this. That bringing the dragons back could have been like, wow, this might be really bad. He might feel that. He might see... Foresee this being bad for the small folk. But actually taking the step to murder his longtime charge, the person he's been protecting his whole life. Ah, even if he saw that clear and present danger to the small folk, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know that he would do it this way. And I struggle to think that he would even do it because it's Egg. I mean, even if Egg is going nuts, I think he would just, yeah, I think he would protect I think it was more likely Dunk accidentally did something that made the fire spread, like disrupted this ritual or something. I, I don't even expect that, but I think that's more likely. That's possible. Or if 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 Egg was full-blown mad and was actually trying to sacrifice some of his own blood, then I could see maybe Dunk stepping in, but not starting a fire to stop him. 
maybe again yeah. accidentally. Like that would again, he would pull his sword or something and just this is dunk. He can outfight anyone hand to hand, pretty much. You know, it seems like there would have been a lot of moments leading up to that moment where he could have had some effect other than starting a random fire with wildfire. Yeah, he would know what this all is about. He's like, wait, you're going, you're trying to bring dragon. I didn't get that throughout all these meetings and all yeah. your <laughs> pouring over these ancient texts. How did that not click for me? Dunk the lung, thick as a guy. Shouldn't you know? <laughs> thick as a <laughs> castle wall. Oh, the castle walls are on fire. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, green fire. Yes. I didn't know that fire could do that. No, he he yeah, so it's kind of hard for him to get to that point without having seen some of this coming or having it be under the radar cuz yeah, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, he's by egg all the time. He's at his side. Remember the King's Guard guard the King's secrets as well because they're too close to not hear them. <laughs> it's no it's unavoidable that the King's Guard hear the King's secrets in the first place, which is part of why they are charged with guarding them. Nina has a good answer here. The simple answer is probably best. Remember that Danny first tried to hatch her eggs by putting them in the fire. Just in the brazier there, in the brazier. And in the, yeah, the bra, one in each <laughs> cup. <laughs> the third one, I don't know what she was doing with that one. And she's bouncing uh, them up and down, shaking them uh, until they start, heating them up. <laughs> Which were her like instincts or ancestral memories were kind of pushing her to do that. And that's a whole nother sub- subject. But Egg was probably having the same ancestral memories, harken, call the call from ancient voices, but they don't hear it the same way. They don't quite interpret it the same way because it is dreamscapey. It is kind of like Bran and the Three-Eyed Crow. He's not entirely sure what he's seeing. There's a lot of symbolism mixed with imagery, and it's just as confusing to the character as it is to the reader. So Thank he you. didn't have dragon fire or a pyre, so he used what he thought was the best ne- next best thing, which was wildfire, which we know how perilous that can be. I was going to say, I agree with what J.S. Holgerson said in the chat here. He'd give him a clouding. Give him a cloud on the ear. <laughs> yeah, why do you need to burn everything? Just give him a cloud Just on the ear. Put that wildfire down. <laughs> 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 That's hilarious. All right, well, let's take a let's take a little halfway point here break, and uh, I think we'll do a trial by theory part two or something. We might have to. We, we got so many left over. Yeah, yeah. At this rate, we're I don't know if we're going to get through half of them. But to be clear, remember that even if your theory is not addressed yet in this episode, you still have a chance to win a shirt because your your name is still listed here. Yeah, everyone got so, entered in the drawing. If you submit yeah, a theory, did. not just the ones that are getting read, and everyone in the live stream chat is in a drawing, a separate drawing from. Like we're doing multiple drawings and one is for just y'all who came live. So you have an extra special chance to get it. Cool. Let's do these live chat questions real quick. The super chats and then we'll do our drawing. Some some of these will go through kind of quick. Bloody Ben Blackwood. What's up, Scott? He says he likes the theory that the Wolfswood was once the Blackwood and the Blackwoods lived up in the north controlling that area before the stars took control and sent them south. Totally agree. I'm I'm 100. I'm maybe not 100% on board with that. 95% on board with that. 90% on board with that. And we go into that in great detail in our Blackwood Part 1 episode, The Time of the Tree. And maybe refer to it in Part 2 as well. But mostly Part 1, that's the ancient Blackwood. So rather than taking some, some of our precious time with something that we've answered elsewhere, I can point you right to that if you want a more thorough answer. Ethan S. says, Knight's King ensorcelled Knight's Queen, a Stark. She's at the bottom of the crypts. John's mom is there, and so is the others. The Starks are Kings of Winter by her, Lyanna, and Bale the Bard Eclipse. I'm somewhat on board with maybe not the specific knight's queen being a Stark, not against it necessarily, but that there is some sort of ancient connection between the others and the Starks. I've, old Nan flat out says Night King was a Stark. I mean, 
Yeah. It's absolutely in play. And it would be a really wonderful parallel between the Targaryens having a little bit of dragon blood or some sort of thing going with the Starks having a little bit of like ice blood, whatever, just for lack of a better word, maybe not the other's blood isn't quite right, but something, some sort of connection to that ancient magic that bookends like ice and fire, right? That's the, that's the song of ice and fire. So they both have that kind of thing going on. Totally on board with that aspect. Maybe not so much he minging at the bottom of the crypts, but yeah, maybe. I mean, Brand, we, we've wondered, another one, Brandon the Builder episode, one of the questions we ask is, is Brandon the Builder buried in the crypts of Winterfell? He built Winterfell. Presumably he would have built the crypts as well, or they would have buried him and built some crypts for him after he died. If he's down there, the crypts are partially collapsed. So we don't know, like George wrote it. So he kind of gave himself an out there like, well, it's, it's one little cave-in creates all this <laughs> mystery. That's another one I can, I can slightly cut short my answer on this one. I, if, if a Shay or Sean, y'all want to weigh in, go for it. But Brandon, the Builder episode and the Buildings of Brandon, which is a patrons and subscribers only episode. Those both deal with this. It's probably not exactly known. And what's older, Winterfell or The Wall? Probably Winterfell, but maybe not. Maybe The Wall. I don't know. I, I, but it's I close one way or the yeah. other, though, right? They were both built around the same time. Supposedly um, both in his lifetime. So, yeah. Yeah. Especially relative to how long they exist when they got built is pretty much the same time. But anyway, my point being that people from The Wall could theoretically be buried at, Winter, at Winterfell. Super chat from a long-expected soundscape. Is that Jordan Reynolds sending that? They're working on a soundscape for Lord of the Rings, where you, while you're listening, while you're reading it, you have the soundtrack playing that has like music and sounds from like maybe battles or nature sounds, stuff that would be appropriate. And, and they long-term want to do one for a Song of Ice and Fire. That's a great idea. Lady Bela says, can I suggest my theory that, this, that I named seven deadly oils? It theorizes that Tyene Sand will use her connection with the Sept to poison the seven sacred oils used to anoint kings to kill Tommen. Oh, that's cool. I mean, the idea that the Sand Snakes want to kill Tommen is pretty much straightforward. That's like, yep, they do, they do want to do that. They do be murderous towards Lannisters. And that's a cool way to do it. That would be a really, like, shocking rejection like the gods have rejected Tommen like the six, seven yeah. sacred oils go on him and he drops dead mm. the rumors <laughs> the stories that would spread that's a great idea because if George yeah. I don't know if this is what George is going to do but if he, if it occurred to him he'd be like mm, the narrative yeah. power of that moment <laughs> is very strong good idea very good idea Lady Bela I like it a lot yeah it fits like there's evidence that something that could be revealed it's fun. It would have a huge impact on a story. Yeah, it's a really good theory. I, I, I'm not sure if it's likely, but I, but I like it a lot. I, it's not... I don't think you could just totally dismiss it. Yeah. And, and it is fun. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. All right, Shea, shall we do our yeah. drawings? That sounds great to me. As we went, I was collecting people who were in the live chat. So hopefully I mostly got everyone. Live chat from Littlefinger says, I love the Laris is seeing through rats stuff. I eat it right up. Like rats eat cheese, apparently. So the idea with that is pretty basic. Laris uh, being of strong bloodline. <laughs> strong and strong. Now, of, of from the Riverlands where there's the second most, probably, prominence of old God's blood and skin changer blood. Obviously, the North would be first. And that's obviously not counting beyond the wall, but which would be even more. But the idea is that he has some skin changer power and can see through the eyes of, well, rats in this case, it would potentially be other animals as well. And that enables him to spy on all sorts of things throughout the Red Keep. Absolutely possible. Joe Magician's a big fan of this theory. Recommend Joe Magician for 
that and several other Laurie Strong and just how strong related theories. He's in the chat right now, by the way. Oh, is he? Well, how's it going, my man? Okay, we got our first winner in the live stream chat. Paul MacArthur. I'll put it in the chat. Email Westeros History Giveaway at gmail.com with your address with your address, name, and shirt size. Yeah. Um, that's our first winner. We can draw a second one right now at the live stream. What do you think? Let's do another one. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. You can more check. drawings. The more okay, drawings. The, the second winner. Asha, not Yara. All right. Um, so good. same for you. Paul MacArthur and Asha, not Yara. Please send us an email at westeroshistorygiveaway at gmail.com. Right and those are our two live chat winners. And again, I will be drawing from the whole list of, sub- of submissions and then I'll contact you on Patreon or on Facebook or wherever you submit it. Mm-hmm. But there's two winners. And now a word from our sponsor, Smile Brilliant. I'm really, really happy with how my teeth are getting much, much whiter through this process of using Smile Bright, Smile Brilliant's teeth whitening process. At the beginning of this campaign, I was telling you all about what not to do and told you I would be starting my own journey. Now I have. We're well into it. I'd probably be done within about 10 days, I think. And if you're not watching, you you can't tell. If you're you are watching, you might not be able to tell anyway. It's not the easiest thing to tell. Like, like white, whiter, whiter. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, I can tell. It's, it's one of those things where you're like, it's so gradual, you're like, is it whiter? I can't really tell. But then eventually, like, yeah, okay, that's whiter. That's definitely better. Event over time, it's like, yeah, that's absolutely making a difference. At first, you're kind of like, oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's like that the incremental change, sometimes it's hard to notice until. It, it reaches a certain point where you're like, yeah, that's that's huge. So it's definitely working for me. It's really easy for me to be enthusiastic about a product that's working directly on me. So there you go. It's it's very simple and straightforward, but it's not just about whitening. It's about a full dental health, taking care of your mouth, your teeth, your gums, looking good and being healthy. Those two things go together. They're not identical, but they are very much related. If you haven't already, go to smilebrilliant.com. Use the code Westeros to get 20% off on top of whatever else they've got going on. There may be another site-wide sale happening at the time. You can get a variety of products, electric toothbrushes, regular toothbrushes, teeth whitening, things to work on your gums, rather. If you're grinding your teeth, they've got solutions for that. I've discussed that before. Just everything you could possibly imagine. A lot of ways to take care of your teeth that you probably didn't even consider. You might be like, hey, I could use that. That seems really good for me. So check it out. At least take a look. You might be surprised at what's available these days in the full dental line. Once again, that's smilebrilliant.com, 20% off using the code Westeros. Reggie Dupre in our Facebook group corrected my mistake last week. I misquoted a line from a band. I said, channel that hate to productive. And I said that was a rage against the machine line. No, it's a Pantera line. Somehow Pantera is a little more appropriate for Song of Ice and Fire because... There's an actual goddess. There's the Lysine cat goddess is Pantera. <laughs> it's also just Spanish for panther, but hey, whatever. Are there any machines in Song of Ice and Fire? That is something I wondered based on this. Uh, this well, I was like, Rage Against the Machine. It Does the word machine appear in the books is my quick trivia question. Think, uh, think of the answer, whether it's yes or no, and I will reveal it in five, four, three, Two, one. Your guess is? They describe the, the wildfire dragons they brought to Dorne for the invasion. As machines? Yeah. I, yeah. I believe you're right. And they, 
I, I believe you're right. They certainly also have at least two or three examples of a siege, a catapult trebuchet being called a machine, a siege machine. I might be wrong about that. I didn't actually check. That was I, just my I didn't thought. either, but it does appear in the books. I mean, I, I did check. Okay. I just don't know okay. if that example does. There's I, there's, I think, four examples of the word machine. Okay. So I did check. Anyway. All right. Next up, Warren Dudson, Arya to return to the Riverlands, meets up with Lady Stoneheart and learns how all-consuming pursuing vengeance can be in, can be in a bid to free her mother. She kills Stoneheart with needle. Well, I'm not sure about Arya putting her, killing her own mother, but I do think there's some thematic resonance here. I do think that the core idea of all-consuming vengeance being what her mother is kind of representing as Stoneheart and that being too much. Because we do all, I think it's easy to see even already that Stoneheart is going too far. Even like, like Thoros is like, ah, this is too much. And, and Brienne is like, what is this? You know, it's, yeah. And then she hangs a child. I mean, yeah, that's not, that's not great. There is a lot of vengeance there. I'm not sure Arya is fully consumed by vengeance. I'm not sure about that. And she's certainly learning to be less so. I think Arya is more learning, is learning to turn less about vengeance and more about justice. And I think she already has a sense of that. Though I think that's something we pointed out several times is that Arya, almost more so than any character, has a really distinct idea of what's good and, and not good. And she's very rooted to those ideas. And, and it's one of the first things we see is her at odds with how other people's morals just quickly bend based on the uh, scenario and how like morals are not, not as absolute as she thought. Like the case of Micah and her, her lady and, and Joffrey and Robert's sloppy justice in quotes there, which really... And yeah, go ahead. Her witness to the trial by combat of yeah. Beric and Sandor too. Like she thinks Sandor is evil and murderous and deserves to be punished, but the gods disagree. And she knows he did knights, it. All these ostensibly respectable men all of them up, he's free. You know, he can yeah. go, yeah. And, no, but the question isn't, no, did he kill Micah? Did he murder Micah? Is he, is he responsible for, mm-hmm. for Micah's death? And I think he is at least partly responsible, but that you can't... If he's solely responsible, that means Joffrey's not responsible at all, and I don't think that's fair, right? Yeah, that's not accurate or just or whatever. Or even Cersei or whoever else, yeah. yeah. Like, I agree that you can't put it all on Sandor. For sure. I'm not sure that you can take it off of his shoulders. But you own. can't take it all off of him yeah. either. So maybe he is guilty, you know, of manslaughter, some other subcrime that maybe you should be punished for, but maybe not by death. And maybe there's room for redemption and et cetera. So I'm not so sure. I think maybe Stoneheart may pass on her own. I'm not sure anyone will kill her, but it's possible. And Arya maybe is a candidate for that. I'm not sure. I, I think that this is more another one that's maybe a little more thematic and symbolic rather than literal. What I like to see here too is something that maybe I hadn't really thought about before is to consider Euron here, which is like, Euron, what does he have to do with this? Euron went out in the world and did a bunch of things to test whether the gods are real or not. He's like, well, they say that this is, you know, the gods will do this. Gods punish kinslayers. He's killed two of his own brothers, at least, (laughs) and nothing happened. There was no punishment. Yet, you know, maybe there's that. There's always the yet part. The gods move on their own time, but he's done a number of things to test humankind's version of what proves the gods exist, and has seen. It doesn't seem like the gods exist. Ari's kind of done that same thing. Your example of the trial by combat to her might suggest she might interpret it as gods don't care or the gods aren't real. Whereas you might have interpreted Sean. One idea you just floated was well, maybe it's just that it wasn't justice wouldn't be Sandor's execution. The gods 
did care, but they say, oh, Joffrey and Cersei, and those are the ones who are truly responsible. Sandor maybe just deserves a lighter punishment, not death. And he's Which been through he's plenty. getting. He has, been, yeah, he has suffered. He suffered quite a lot. He, in a number of And continues points. to. And continues to. And yeah, now he's atoning and working at the quiet aisle, presumably, and just slogging away and living with his thoughts and grief and trauma and all that. So yeah, he's not, he's not off having a happy life. But back to Arya, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think her arc is, it is going to take her back to the Riverlands. I think she has to be reunited with Nymeria. So I do see maybe something along these lines. Like I could see them coming into contact. I mean, Stoneheart's searching for Arya. Like that's a specific goal of hers is scouring the Riverlands for signs of her daughter. Because that's one of the few she knows is alive that she can actually get to. She knows Sansa's alive, but she can't get to Sansa. She's in the Vale and hidden up in the mountains. Like how is Stoneheart going to do that? And she doesn't know that Bran and Rickon are alive, presumably. And she doesn't know where Arya is, but if she did, getting to Arya is probably tougher than getting to Sansa. That's true. If she knew right. where Arya was in, was in Bravos, She might be like, all right, let's focus on Sansa. Yeah. <laughs> Last she heard Arya was in the Riverlands. That's no longer, that's old info, though. Yeah, so I, I could sort of see this. Nina thinks it overplays the all-consuming vengeance aspect a bit, and I'm, I sort of see where Nina's coming from, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go quite that far. I think there is a, there's some possibility here. But... Yeah, that is tough. Like imagining her putting killing her own mother, but but is it really killing her? Is that really her mother? That's another Is it really her mother? Yeah, yeah. Or is it just her mother's body with a few of her mother's emotions that that were trapped in there, but most of it's gone? Like, is that like it's the Miriam Asdor question? Is that what is life when everything you love is gone? What is is this really your mother when everything about her is gone, other yeah. than just a few barely even looks like her? Good, good question. Hard to answer, though. That's one of the tough... That's probably... It might have been the toughest one to answer so far. I'm not sure. Hmm. Good one, good one. I think it, I, I'm inclined as a whole to not, I don't know, buy into that theory because it requires too many different things, right? Like, are you getting to the Riverlands? Eh, maybe. But then once she gets there, also killing Lady Stoneheart. Also, Lady Stoneheart still be alive when she gets there. It, it, a lot of things require for that to come to fruition. So I'm inclined to not think everything's going to line up just for that. Hmm. Ashton Johnson brings up the concept of Daenerys's pyre having an echo through time. I love that idea, and we have talked about doing an episode on it. We haven't yet. I think if, if Joe Magician's out there in the, in the chat still, we talked about doing it with him. He would be a great candidate to have for that discussion. Basically, yeah, the different versions of Danny's pyre being dreamt of by prior Targaryens. That's what they were dreaming of, whether it was Arian dreaming of wildfire, whether it was Egg dreaming of... They all had some version of this dream of what Danny ended up doing. They, they thought it was them. They didn't realize it was some future Targaryen. Aegon the Conqueror maybe even had a dream like this. He doesn't specifically talk. It's not specifically mentioned when, he's when, we're, when we hear about his other dreams, stopping the others in the long term. He doesn't even call them the others. It's just some vague, wintry darkness. But just because that detail wasn't given to us doesn't mean Aegon didn't have those dreams. And maybe when that's fleshed out more, if it ever is, there will be more details. There's surely more to the dream than just those like two or three lines that Viserys told Rainier or whatever else we get. Two people, Mona Radu and our friend Jasmine Hawkins, hey Jasmine, wants to talk about Bonifer Hasty. Two sort of related theories. One is that Bonifer Hasty is Danny's father. One is that Bonifer Hasty is Rhaegar's father. <laughs> now, unfortunately, the Danny's father one doesn't really work. The, the timing is pretty unsupported, uh, unfortunately. Like, this would have been. 25 years later, like Rail and Bonifer met when Rail was like 13 and 
Danny was born like 25 years later. So there isn't the proximity of, of Rayella and Bonifer doesn't really work. Bonifer had already gone off to join his religious order and had given up on ever being married because Rayella married mm-hmm. Arius. Like he says he gave up on it when Rayella married Arius, which would have been oh, not quite 20, a little less than 25 years past, but pretty you close know, to that. Can I say just the thing about Jasmine? Yeah. You know, Jasmine Hawkins is the first listener we ever met in person. Oh! At a convention. The first person who ever came up to us at a convention was like, hey, I listened to History of Westeros. Hell yeah. And Jasmine is also renowned for entering giveaways <laughs> and winning like so many things. So when she submitted, like she never comments these days, but she committed, submitted for this. And I just really have a lot of respect for Jasmine for that. <laughs> Big winner, Jasmine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she got her. I hope she wins another giveaway. <laughs> I'm rooting. If I'm rooting for anyone in this giveaway, it's her right now. <laughs> So as for being Rhaegar's father, that is, mm, it's a little more possible because Rhaegar's timeline comes, position in the timeline comes a lot earlier than Daenerys, but it still suffers from the same problem of them not being around each other in that era. This would have been, Bonifer Hasty's access to Rayella would have been almost impossible. Like regular nights meeting with the queen alone like, yeah, that is just not, that just doesn't happen. Especially because don't forget how paranoid Ares was about people being around his wife and, and what was happening to his babies that kept dying. Maybe that's why he's so paranoid. She's meeting with these knights alone. <laughs> <laughs> you blew the lid, a whole lid off of it, Sean. All right, all right, I changed my mind. Bonifer, <laughs> I was too hasty. Bonifer is Rhaegar's father. <laughs> <laughs> nah, this is a fun idea, but it's one of those ones the timeline doesn't really, doesn't really support it. Yeah, so people like to have fun with these things with the with the manipulation of time and, and the possibilities of Rhaegar and different parentage. It's like, hey, well, if we can have parentage, fun with parentage on John, why not throw that to other characters on Danny? Just keep expanding it. Who else has questionable parentage? <laughs> this one also would be really hard to reveal. Like, who could who can know this? Who could prove this? Who could bring this to light? Like, yeah. Right? That's a difficulty of this theory. Well, one thing to keep in mind here that is worth mentioning is, remember, Ares and Rayella were married by Jaehaerys II, his father, their father, because of the Woods Witch, which was probably the uh, ghost of Highheart, who told them the same prophecy that probably Rhaegar dreamt of and Danny fulfilled, and other people dreamt, other Targaryens dreamt of before that. This does maybe tie into, and of course, Harry II became king right after Summerhall. So his own father died trying to bring the dragons back. So it's very much on his mind, you would think. And so you have another voice comes in, someone who's presumably, as she did to us, showed that she really did have accurate predictions, which gave her other predictions more weight. Because when she tells the Brother Without Banners, yeah, there's a purple serpent and, you know, a maid with purple serpents in her hair and a, a raven... A crow on a cracking shoulder on a swinging bridge. Like all these things that definitely came true. Like pretty straightforward. Like, okay, she, she just predicted like 15 different things that all came true. So you can imagine if she went to court in the time of Jaehaerys II and predicted a bunch of things that came true and then predicted this prince that was promised stuff, they would take it seriously. Just like they took Danny's the Dreamer seriously when she presumably said several things that came true. And then when she predicted the doom, they're like, uh-oh. She was right about those other things. Similar thing. Once a prophet predicts things accurately, why would you not listen to a prophet? You know, it's like it's hard to ignore someone who has predicted the future <laughs> several times. Like, 
I don't know how to deal with that in the real world, but man, it would be really hard to ignore if, if it was true. <laughs> I guess maybe you're saying it is more revealable than I was thinking. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Through the ghost of High Heart, like if maybe she, I, I don't or know how it might affect the story. I don't know how. Yeah. It's another one of things where it, it could be revealed a lot more thoroughly to the reader than it could be to the character uh, in the world. Yeah. So yeah, Jennifer Kellar Singleton says Manta Rader wrote the Pink Letter. Okay, so this is a popular theory. It's been out there for a while. Of course, there are a lot of permutations of the Pink Letter theory. Generally, it's Mance or Ramsey or Stannis. Or a few people think it might be even Melisandre or a couple, a couple other candidates that are more fringy. Mance is a valid theory. However, I think there are some strong pieces of evidence against it, which sort of leaves Ramsey as the best guess, given that the evidence against Mance... There's, see, it's one of those things where there, there is evidence for Mance, but there's a lot of evidence against Mance. There's, four evi- there's evidence for Ramsey, not that much evidence against him. Right now, counter evidence isn't how you build a theory. So that's, I can see why people have seized on the pro evidence for Mance while not looking as hard as at the anti evidence. Cause that's, well, theory crafting is fun and that's not as fun. It's not as fun to work really hard to disprove your own theory. Let's be honest. That isn't as fun. It's fun to be right, though. It is fun. It's fun to to make an accurate prediction. And so if you work hard to prove your theory wrong and can't, then you're more likely to be right. And that's, Maybe the most fun. <laughs> I, and I do think a good theory should be run through the ringer. If it's not, if it can survive yeah. being run through a lot of scrutiny, then that makes it pretty strong. It's like the crucible. If you can stick it in the fire and it melts, eh, maybe it wasn't that strong in the first place. If you can stick it in the fire and it comes out stronger and harder, then you you got something there, right? So don't feel bad if you're if we shoot your theory down. We're all just having fun here. And it's hard. It's also very hard in the year 2023 to come up with original theories for Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> but by the way, it is worth noting that let's say someone thought that Mance wrote the letter, but there was this counter evidence. And so they said, well, who do you think wrote it? Ramsey. Okay, here's the counter evidence. Yeah. Now, maybe there's not a much, but there is counter evidence to Ramsey too. So that that, I, that makes me further understand why people are willing to latch on to Mance because anyone you think it is, there's counter evidence to. And yeah. I, it seems like you should pick the one with the least counter evidence, but it's still tough to be completely firm on that, right? There's not... Okay, so one... There's not a lot of reason... One of the problems here is that Mance... It's questionable why he would even do this. What is the point of him getting this army drawn south when... There's already a conflict coming. This is already happening. Like Stannis is already assaulting these people. This is already underway. What maybe drawing a few more wildlings south would be good because it just adds to Stannis's army. I mean, does, is that all, all that just to beef up the army? You know, it seems a little contorted. It's also hard for how do we know that worked? Like, yeah. So all this effort George put into the pink letter so that there can be one paragraph to describe the. 30 extra troops on top of the thousands that are there already. I don't yeah. know, 200 extra troops. And that, I don't know, it's still, I agree. It's it's hard to see how that impact will come to fruition in the story. The other one I think is a big bar to clear here is, is the writing this all out and sending it. The physical act of Mance finding a way to send a letter from Winterfell, given ravens are tightly controlled. 
the Maester, you know, there's Bolton Maesters are there now. There's no Lewin, you know, there's... There's, there's <laughs> not just paper and pen laying around in drawers everywhere, right? A parchment yeah. would be... And the pink rare wax. Rare and secure. Maybe you have to have a wax. dry place to write it. Yeah, the yeah. wax, so the seal, on and on. The yeah. logistics are difficult here. And not to mention... Not possible, but definitely difficult. Not to mention what Ramsey would do to, you know, once he found... Like, they, we know the Spearwives were captured, you know, because we saw that on page... And then Ramsey's going to torture them. It's kind of, I don't know, could they hold out under torture to not reveal Mance if he was there? Maybe. And if he knew they were captured, he might try to get away. But the castle was on lockdown at that point. So I don't know. He might, even if they told him, even if they told him the truth, does Ramsey under, even understand that truth, who yeah. they are, what they're doing? Does he know who Mance Raider is? Or, you he know, would know like, the name Mance Raider, but he would be maybe confused as to like, what's, why? What is, <laughs> like, why is he involved yeah, here? <laughs> he would maybe just be happy to torture them, but I don't know what he would get from the information they gave him. Yeah, who maybe, sent you? Know. Yeah, he would want to know what they were doing here. He would be like, you know, he's a man, so he's going to be like, well, these women aren't here on their own accord. Someone sent them, you know, mm -hmm. it's just how you probably perceive it. He's a chauvinistic man. Exactly, yeah. Every man yeah. is like that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> he would <laughs> he would assume some man is behind this, you know, when he would maybe even be right, but <laughs> it would be a flawed take that led him maybe to the right answer. So anyway, we, we do discuss this in greater detail as well in the Dance with Dragons coverage of Valar I don't know exactly which episode off the top of my head. I think it would probably be, it's definitely one of the later ones because it's, I think, the third to last John chapter where the pink letter appears. Second or third. Anyway. All right. Stacey Meyer says, Lady Stoneheart will give John the kiss of life to bring him back. Now, I think that was the plan in George's original conception because he did have Catelyn going beyond the wall and mm -hmm. dying there. I think it was going to be, he was going to, she was going to travel with Bran and die on the way. Bran was still going to make it to the Three-Eyed Raven, but she was going to be one of the like companions that died along the way. That would have been pretty sad. Of course, and she still dies. A, it's still sad. It but. would have been a bit of a redemption for Catelyn for her terrible treatment of John. That's if true. Her, if her life is what brought him back too. So I think there's a decent chance George had this plan, but maybe it's no longer possible because it's like now Catelyn using her. It still could happen. I mean, John could be on ice for a while before he's resurrected. <laughs> there is no reason to be certain he's going to be resurrected right away. He might be. On ice or on long claw? <laughs> nice. <laughs> ice, nice. Yeah. So <laughs> it could happen because so the timing isn't necessarily an argument against it, but that is a, that is a bit of a problem. Like right now, she's pretty busy in the, in the Riverlands <laughs> with lots of stuff still going on and he's just been stabbed. So like there, he would be on ice for a while if she is the one to bring him back. So that's a problem because... Yes, his body wouldn't decompose, but is he really going to be out of the story that long? You know, is he really going to... Maybe it won't be as long as I think, but seems like it'll be a while. Seems like there's plenty that still has to go on in the Riverlands. And stuff is happening. Like, immediately there's going to be fallout for the stabbing. Like, the free folk who are John's loyalists and 1-1 one -one is in the middle of currently going berserk. I mean, it's like it's in the moment, lots of things were happening. And they were trying to leave to go to Winterfell right before John got stabbed. Like all these free folk were all fired up, ready to go fight Boltons. And now what? So that situation is a big powder keg that the fuse has already been lit on. We're just waiting to see. And in fact, it already exploded. We're just waiting to see where all the bits and pieces land and what else catches fire <laughs> and what other supplementary explosions happen after that. It just occurred to me that John degrading, what's the word, decomposing or whatever, isn't necessarily a reason that he can't be brought back. 
Yeah, and Catelyn's a great example. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And Catelyn not only is brought back, but is the leader of a group of warriors mm-hmm. like John could be too. And it might be True. a little bit of subversion of him, of, of, of tropes too, to, to have this young, healthy, handsome Undead. leader. Yeah. Instead, he's this decomposed, gross leader, but he still you know, carries some supernatural power, the respect of the people around him, the potential heir of Winterfell. And you know, maybe if he is even a little more mentally there than Caitlin is. He might even have more respect or ability or potential. But but would people accept this undead? I don't know. It, I could see a lot of interesting things coming from that. I don't know if George would do that, but I would be I would be impressed and intrigued. Rel- somewhat related, our, our good friend McCall Schick, who I podcast with over on the Podcast of Surprise, our Witcher podcast, says, Brienne steps into the path of Jamie's sword during their Stoneheart duel, so he will be free. She also says, I hate this, but I kind of see it. <laughs> Well, whether it's that specific thing of Brienne stepping into the path of a sword, I do think Brienne will stand for Jamie in some sort of trial by combat situation. Jamie won't fight for himself because he's not that capable of it. Despite the training he's done, we know that it hasn't produced great results. He's still not very good with the sword. Whereas Brienne is quite excellent with the sword. Even with her recent woundings, she's probably still great and certainly better than Jamie. So no question there. So I think that she will save him, but maybe not her, I don't know that she will die in the process. That is a thing that I f- have a fork in the road. I think there's too much more for Brienne to do, and I think she's in the story. And I think that it would also be kind of fitting for a trial by combat for them to escape on that on those grounds when it's also how Sandor got away. And maybe it'll maybe this will be a f- vehicle for the Brotherhood fracturing even further if Stoneheart just doesn't want to accept the result <laughs> or something like that. It's like, nope, kill them anyway, or kill her anyway, kill him anyway, you know? That might be what has him finally abandon her or turn on her. Yeah. Can I say real quick, though, the idea that Brienne still has more to do in the story, I think if before Oberon fought the mountain, you might have said, if you're speculating <laughs> what's going to happen, well, Oberon's got too much more to do in a story. Like, oh, maybe not. Like, it makes the death maybe. more meaningful or impactful. His you know? death did so much. I don't know that Brienne's would. I mean, it would hit readers maybe even harder. The audience, right. Sure, and that's something. But like in terms of like the plot, just having her be gone, I don't know. A few people would even notice. I mean, that's sad to say. It's an interesting thing about her character. Someone who's such a a great person and warrior that would hardly be noticed being killed. I want to see her go north. I want to see her... Yeah, I want to see more from her. But that, that doesn't mean it will happen. But I... And I definitely am not going to look at the TV show for for evidence on this particular guess. Because mm-hmm. it's just so different. I mean, anything involving Stoneheart all, all, yeah. all automatically is different. But even though Jamie and Brienne have their respective fates on TV, I don't think either of those are necessarily what we'll expect for the book. So I can those I can discard almost entirely. Especially Jamie's more so than Brienne's even. <laughs> by the way, prompted by Steve Van Prien in the chat, I did a poll on okay. will there be a ghost POV chapter? Because that was a big topic Ooh, right now. Second life and chapter. so far, with 20 votes in, it's 85% people think there will be a ghost POV. Oh, so nice. pretty heavily people think, like, which again, doesn't necessarily, to be clear, a ghost chapter doesn't mean that ghost is sacrificed or anything bad happens to ghosts. It means John goes and lives inside a ghost while, before they bring it back. Yeah, so v- just, vague yeah. setup, or maybe not vague, but setup by the Veramir chapter of yeah. seeing him elsewhere and, and, and various and, and, other... And, yeah, and by the idea of Rob and Grey Wind, I suppose, a little bit as well. Or the other short moments of direwolf dreams yeah. that we've had in a few other chapters. Arya and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. John had one and Bran's had mm-hmm. a few. All right. 
River Shannon Loya, how's it going, River? Says, oh, buddy. Number one, okay, the everyone important dies twice there. I'm not sure if this is a theory or just something people have noticed because it doesn't have a answer. There's no answer. It's, it's, she just says, why is this important? I don't know, but it seems to be a thing. Maybe it's just, hey, let's look at it here. There's Bran falling from the tower. Drogo dying from infection and coming back. Danny dying by self-immolation, coming back. John being, yeah, John of course being stabbed, coming back. Arya drinking poison, coming back. Cat being killed at the Red Wedding and coming back. Davos being drowned, coming back. Tyrion, arguably Tyrion has died several times. But falling, I think actually, like she cites being in a wine barrel. I think falling into the, into the Roin is, <laughs> yeah. was a lot closer to death. But whatever, either way. Or being sentenced to death. Yes, that's a good Wait. one too. He's, that's why I said arguably he's died several times. But <laughs> When I was reading this, I, I thought if you phrase it slightly different, rather than dies twice, if someone, maybe this is even more too broad, but goes into the darkness or is reborn. Because you might even get more than twice out of some of these. John had to yeah. kill the boy for Amon's instructions. Ooh, yeah. uh, it, it, there might yes. be a few other examples of people who sort of, like you kind of mentioned Tyrion, and if I thought about it more, I, I feel like I had thought of a couple I can't remember now, but I don't know about everyone important, but many people. Did we even mention Gregor, for example? Certainly, and, he came back, yep. <laughs> Sandor might probably, be able to, well, you could argue for him. Sandor, he, he might be able to put Loris. Loris. Loris in his category. Some people maybe. think he's dead, yeah. and I don't necessarily mean readers. I mean like the people in the story think he's going to die, and yeah, it's like people yeah. came back, or if it was if it was some sort of fake out. Yeah, John Connington. I mean that wasn't people. That was people thinking he was dead. He didn't actually die. That was just a, a cover story. So still, so I think that with but with if it's something like that George is yeah yeah if it's something George is trying to do, you can see ways he would start with this idea and find different ways to do it. You know so. People think someone's dead, but really they're not. Someone goes into a coma, but comes out of the coma. Someone changes who they are as a person. and kind of, Maybe Arya, like, if, again, if you're vague enough, like going into the darkness and coming back, Arya going blind and then getting her vision back mm. and uh, yeah. abandoning herself for the house of black and white, but then reclaiming her identity, that, et cetera. Like I, again, I don't know what... Maybe if this is a theory, then it means who else is going to have to do this? Who Who hasn't died yet that we can expect to die. Oh, you might even know who Jamie has, who Jamie was, has died yeah. when he got his hand chopped off. Which I think is where this is headed. I think it is more, it is a little more metaphorical than literal. I think it's a lot of these. I think George is using the, the elements that a fantasy world provides him to get more straightforward with the metaphor of rebirth and, and having you know, like being different upon your rebirth. Like a, you can actually die in a fantasy story and come back and be different. Whereas if it was a, rooted in real life, you would do things like baptisms or shaving your hair and just renewal, things that, yeah, things that imply you're starting a new life. Do you have your action? hair off. I'm just kind of down on the idea in general. I'm like, you know, it's, it's less a theory to me and more rumination on the themes in the series of rebirth and all that and not, not so much theoretical. That's a great way to put it. Ruminations on... on yeah. Yeah, because it is... Which is probably why their river doesn't have an answer to what this means. Because it is probably more symbolic and thematic and, and human rather than something that's leading to something. There's no, there isn't necessarily some overwhelming, overarching conclusion to glean from this. Maybe it's just a way to look at George's style. It's like, hey, this is, an, this is a great observation on how George writes his characters. So maybe to make this a theory, you would have to say something like, Brienne is going to die, but come back. Yeah, yeah. And then because, talk yeah. about how that might happen. Yeah. And this is some of the evidence for uh, yeah. that it's happening to other people. That, that would be how this would be a theory. And sure, I could, you could maybe make that argument for any number of people. But I, I don't think I would build on this as my proof for that. 
I, given it, we're barely considering this a theory. I don't want this to be too much of a tangent, but I, I think a lot about how many characters have been imprisoned. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Almost every single one. I mean, just if you just think, try to think of four or five characters. I bet they've been imprisoned. Yeah, and so I can take that and be like, well, if you you mean that, then well, obviously that means that all these characters that have not been imprisoned still have to become imprisoned. Are gonna go. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) you take it like that. So, you know. It's like visiting (laughs) the underworld. One other quick thing about this thought I had about like interpreting George's writings or or the meanings behind his theories or whatever. I'm confident that he is highly influenced by D&D. And it's common in D&D when, especially when a campaign has been going for a while and the group knows each other and they have a real well-developed character, but they die. They're in some battle, they roll a one, they get stabbed with the sword and they die. Well, roll a 20-sided die and if you roll a 20, you can get resurrected. You're only in a coma. (laughs) There's ways to come back when you die in D&D. And I think that George is doing some of that, even if it's subconscious influence of D&D or active decisions based on how he would have run a D&D campaign. If you can imagine, that might be how he writes, like, He's the DM and the players, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and he's just playing this all out in his own mind by himself that if someone got into a situation where he wanted this character to move on through some arc, but they couldn't survive this sword fight, okay, they die, but they're going to come back. Well, you know what? Like, it, it, little known fact, if the dice had come up differently, Danny would have just walked into that pyre and not come back out. And it would have been a really different story. Yeah. But he rolled two twenties, <laughs> so she can She's like, finally, a Targaryen <laughs> rolled two twenties. On two twenty-sided dice, you need that one in four hundred shot. There was a second part that she presented here, kind of a separate thing, but she mentioned that there's a mushroom called Amanita muscaria, and there's all kinds of talk about it. And it looks like a weirwood. It's like white with the red top, white oh, you know, it's a white stalk and a, a red top with white spark or white with red sparkles or whatever. It looked kind of like a weirwood. But there's a guy that studied this who's named Stamets, and Stamets is a character in Star Trek who studies. The mycelial network, anyway. It's oh. a whole, I appreciate this extra connection. Yeah, That's the same cool. Michelle Yeoh Star Trek series, but nice. <laughs> yeah, they add that that those mushrooms were sacred to Odin, and a lot of like Norse beliefs involved taking those mushrooms, and there are probably some other belief systems as well. That makes sense. It's kind of similar to the without the mushrooms, although there are plenty of mushrooms growing under in the in Blood Raven's cave. The similar idea to drinking the, the werewood paste. Maybe there's some mushrooms in there. Samuel Forsyth says there are still old Valyrians living in Valyria they are old mages so advanced they're practically geneticists when Arya Targaryen disappears with Valyrian I believe they ended up in Valyria they had contact with the old Valyrians who had been trying to reinvent dragons they'd been crossbreeding worms and fireworms but the offspring were too wild and uncontrollable they weren't sure what made the old dragons tameable or able to bond with their riders they captured Valyrian and Arya took massive samples and came to the conclusion that in order to breed a dragon that can be bound and ridden by a human, the fireworms they used to crossbreed with wyverns must first gestate within a human body. That's a lot. (laughs) So that's a theory with legs. Many dragon legs, or snakes, or slithering. Yeah, maybe there aren't legs, just slithery. Anyway, so there's definitely rumors of people still living in Valyria. And if they were, they might be like altered by the magical fallout. I'm not sure they're hidden magic enclaves in there. That might be a little too much for me. But I do believe they, if anywhere, this knowledge still exists in the world. It's a reasonable theory for where it would be. I I would kind of think that they they would pick up and move somewhere else (laughs) where it's not a blasted hellscape. But maybe there's some reason why they had to stay. Maybe there's some local developments that they wanted to study. I don't know. But if we get to the the thing that I find most interesting here is how this touches on the idea of dragons 
being a creation, and that the fireworms required some kind of human like starter DNA. The fireworms burrow through rock and stone. We know that they were a terror to the hapless slaves of Valyria who were sent down into the mines. They'd occasionally encounter one of these. Yeah, there's a long-standing theory that th- these are creatures crossbred with wyverns to give them flight. So you just take a fire-breathing worm that can't fly and burrow and give it wings that wyverns do have and they don't have fire-breathing, and you've got a dragon. So it's very peculiar how dragons ha- just happen to have the most noteworthy qualities of these two creatures and have so much in common with them, and especially in light of the fact that we know genetic alterations are something the Valyrian did a lot of. Whether that leads to there still being some of them alive and still experimenting, I, yeah, I'm kind of, I would guess no. I can't say for sure. Valerian, something happened to Valerian, some huge wound. I could see that being a fireworm. I could also just see that being just fire damage. It doesn't look like fire damage. It looks like a creature did it. So I could see that being a fireworm or some other thing. I like the idea of, I love delving into the the genetics mad scientist angle here. But the idea that they're still alive, hmm, I, I see that's a little too much for me. I kind of want it to be true, but <laughs> I, can't, I can't. It doesn't sit quite right with me as, in terms of the realism there. But again, there's sh- people living in the blasted landscape. I do believe that's possible. I'm just not sure they're performing experiments. I'm not sure that the conditions of that realm allow for things of that. The experiment they're performing is whether or not they can live there. (laughs) (laughs) So far they are, I guess, without having any long-term effects. Yeah, they're getting the equivalent of radiation sickness or genetic alteration to their DNA, something like that. They add a little footnote here that it's a little similar to Lightbringer in that if you have the sword is quenched by human flesh in someone's heart, then the heat of these embryos inside a body might be a similar, conceptually similar idea. Of course, in Aurea's case, it didn't cool them off. She... Her body could not handle it. And she is Targaryen. I mean, she handled it for a while. Like, arguably, a non-Targaryen would have died a lot quicker. In fact, I, if I had to bet, that would be the case. Because there is pretty decent evidence that Targaryens have some heat resistance, if not the uh, disease resistance as well. And we do know that the, Nina points out the, the fireworms grew to, quote, monstrous size. I mean, Balerion was also monstrous, but monstrous versus monstrous. Yeah, sure. <laughs> They're aggressive creatures, right? All right, next. Diana Dunlap says, every tinfoil hat theory about Quaith, because frankly, they're all tinfoil hat, and I say that as someone who would like to know a lot more about Quaith. Is she Alice Westhill? Is she Sierra Seastar? Let us consider. I don't think Quaith has a secret identity. I think Quaith is Quaith. I get why people want to attach a secret identity to her. She's got a mask. And why does she have a mask? Like, why conceal her identity? Well, partly it's a cultural thing that Ashai do. But why did George write it that way? Why did George write masks for the Ashai people? Was it just to, was it purely to conceal the identity of a few characters? Or was it just, that's just how they are? I just thought it would be a cool cultural thing to do, you know, like a nice, neat, mystical thing for this particular shadowy, mysterious culture to do. But yeah, it could be a way to just conceal identities amongst multiple characters, of Quaith maybe being the most front and center of those. I don't think it's Shiera Seastar that's kind of random to me. I like the idea of trying to figure out what happened to Shiera. And she was definitely deep in magic, but it just seems kind of obscure. Like, there's very little to connect these characters. There has been some work done, Radio Westeros. I was going to say disconnected when you said obscure. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, like, there's no... It's one of the things where it's like you have a 
a screw. You don't know where it fits. It's like, where does the screw go? And you find a spot that it fits. It doesn't mean that's where the screw... It doesn't mean it's the intended spot for it. Because it, it's hard to disprove that it's here. Like, there's very little counter evidence other than, well, this is 100 years later. Why would she be alive? Well, there's, we've seen other examples of people having extended lifespan. So that's not that strong of a counter evidence. It's not like something you can just throw around lightly either. It's hard uh, to... Uh, to follow that analogy a little, if you find a screw in your living room and you're trying to figure out where it goes... You don't go to the neighbor's house and say, hey, does this screw go in your house somewhere? Yeah, in right? this case, That's it's too far away. It's probably just somewhere in the living room. In this right? case, it's <laughs> much farther, like a shy compared yeah. to King's Landing. It's like, this is a screw that goes into Westminster Abbey, you know? <laughs> like, I found it yeah. in my living room. I'm going to share, like, oh, this is the screw from the USS Nimitz. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> anyway. It could be, especially if magic's involved, <laughs> yes. but it's a stretch. It's, it's a stretch. It is a stretch. So Alice Westhill, I mean, that one really I don't get because, yeah, I know people have thrown that theory out there, but she's nothing magical at all about her. So I don't like, know who Alice Westhill is. Alyssa Farman, one of Alyssa Farman, the explorer okay. that sailed west. Like, that's yeah. the one thing she has here is that she sailed west and could have ended up at Esha. Okay. okay. So at least she's got proximity. The proximity argument is not against <laughs> Alyssa Farman, but the complete lack of any magic in her background at all is like, well, oh, maybe she learned magic at Ashai. That is the place to learn. If you're going to go to learn magic, that would be the place to go. But still, she's an explorer. She would like, she's not going to stop to learn magic. She wants to go back out to sea. Although maybe she's learning wind magic and stuff like that. <laughs> if so, then what's she doing? Doing this stuff then. This is nothing to do with wind and exploration. Anyway, yeah, so I, I think that's one that's just, yeah, it's like, it's the screw that no one knows where it goes. It's like, oh, maybe it fits here. Oh, it does kind of fit here. But there's probably a better fit for it that we just haven't found the, the screw hole. Assuming there's even a secret identity. Yeah, or, I right. mean, you may be also talking about the idea of what might have happened to share a sea star and needs to get connected. But yeah. I think Quaith's interesting enough character on her own. She doesn't need to have some secret identity to be interesting. So. We could learn what happened to see Shiera through Bloodraven. Bloodraven was in love with her. He proposed marriage to her a bunch of times. She was like, nope. And apparently she liked keeping him at arm's length. And well, whatever happened to her, he would probably know about it. If she, unless, even if he doesn't know what happened, if she's still alive or not, like if she sailed west or sailed east, he may not know whether she's still alive or not. But he would, he would be aware of her departure, you know? And given his magic and his association with her, he might have used his where would net powers to perceive her and see what happened to her and all that. Which is why we might get an answer, but not much reason for him to bring her up. But George's creative. He could come up with a reason to throw her a few lines. Jeff Long says, the flashbacks of Danny's house with the red door is foreshadowing to where she'll end up at the end of the story, quote, alive and living a quiet life at the house with the red door. Hmm, Interesting. I'll take Nina's answer here. I think it's really good and really succinct. She says, I think the house with the red door is symbolic, not foreshadowing. It functions for Daenerys much as the sled rosebud for the titular character of Citizen Kane, a representation of a lost childhood, a time of simple peace and happiness very far away from the grand destiny she is now in the process of fulfilling. There is no quiet life ahead for her as mother of dragons or breaker of chains or uh, ultimate rest for the princess that was promised, or Azora High, which she may be all those things. The apocalyptic savior of humanity does not have peace in their future. It seems like she's... Yeah, I, I have a hard time with this because I do think she's going to die. I don't think she'll die the way she did in that other version. 
But I think, but she might. But I think it'll be a lot more heroic. But even if it isn't, I do think she'll die, and which doesn't really leave room for this. Although, if you want to be like, give her an ambiguous death and something like maybe there's evidence that she may have gotten away, survived, somehow like John, you know, goes off into the sunset. Maybe Danny has an ambiguous ending where you can headcanon her still being alive, but but maybe not. I, I, I kind of think it'll be more overt, but maybe not. Maybe George will want to leave a little little room for guessing. Yeah, to be fair, even if she does find peace and go, go to a home with a red door and just live her life out without adventure or power, she's still going to die. You know, <laughs> eventually she is still going to die. And that, that makes me wonder too a lot about, you know, when you're theorizing on the endings of characters. I don't know. I just it's it's hard for me to comprehend how George is going to have all the characters come to a final point at the same time. There's so many different characters on such long lifelong quests that he's as interested in how Danny rules after she becomes, you know, if she were to become queen, how she rules after is as much part of her story as does she die or not, you know. Mm. I don't know. I would like to see a simple ending like that for her or some people. I don't know if it's likely. Varus is a secret Blackfire, along with young Griff, who is Illyria's son with Sarah. I do accept the second more readily than the first. Varus's parentage is interesting to me. I wonder about it because people have long wondered if he shaved his head because his hair was silver. That would certainly be a way to conceal it. On the other hand, it just makes so much sense that he shaves his head because he wears wigs. <laughs> and you want a shaved head to wear wigs. It makes it so much easier to wear wigs if you're going to go in disguise. That fits more logically, but it could all it could be both, right? He doesn't have purple eyes. There's no real theory there. The idea of him concealing that for so long would be a little much, or a lot much, really. Now, Nina says, yeah, it's entirely possible that he's a black fire, but it's not that interesting. Like the fact it would be more interesting if he's kind of a nobody that used people in power and struck back at the people that abused him or at the system that abused him, someone who understands what makes monarchies collapse or systems of power collapse and uses that to collapse one and install his own candidate. Yes, that could be a Blackfire candidate. Yes, he could be a Blackfire. Yes, that could be his motivation. But it seems like his motivation is what he tells Kevin at the end. He wants a good king. He wants someone that's actually worthy. Someone that understands the plight of common people like he, like he himself experienced as a child. A king would never have rescued young Varus from having his member chopped off you know, unless this was a forward-thinking king that had laws and stuff that maybe put protections in place for young children in the first place. Yeah, like my take on it is even if the Varus contingent has black fire ties or whatever, or actually has Targaryen ties, whatever. That isn't why Varys is doing what he's doing. It is he isn't doing it because he's trying to put the Black Fires in power. He's doing it for the reasons he's, you went into, Aziz, that like trying to like cultivate what he considers to be a good king and and you know all that. But it makes it easier when his well, when Illyrio and Sarah are have ties to that, and the actual person you put forward can do it. But I don't personally think that, like, even if I kind of do lean on the idea that Illyrio and Sarah are the connection and why young Griff actually has some Targaryen dragon blood in my head, I don't think that that is why Illyrio and Varys 
are working towards this. Like, I don't think it's because they're trying to like take their rightful place on the throne for the black flag. I don't think it's because of like... Yeah, it's not yeah. justice. For, it's not it's the not justice, justice of their house deserves it or one of their houses deserve it. It's justice, period. Yeah. Justice for all is what they're after in that regard. Which even if they have to do some justice. very evil stuff. And yeah. maybe even Illyrio doesn't care about that as much as Varys does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another distance. We don't have to assume they're of one mind. Like, Illyrio might be like, yeah, restore the Blackfires when Varys is like, I don't give a crap about that. A, a Blackfire candidate is just, can certainly fulfill my goals, though, which is, again, a king that cares or a king that's. A capable. believable king that cares. Like, yeah, yeah. He, one, one that, that people will follow that, like, looks like, like, a target. He has to look the part. Which, yeah, he has to look the part. Yeah. You know, something else they might want, which would be a big crossover in a Venn diagram of justice, is stability. Mm. Ilario, who seems to be merchant of sorts, right? He, he's concerned with wealth and trading. Maybe some other stuff too, but that seems to be key to his character. Stability is good for, for commerce. It's good for people. It's good for the population. It's good for farming. It's good for society. It's good in a lot of ways. Sometimes it might be at the expense of, of liberty or justice or something. True, but, true. But that could be a strong motivation for Ilario. If, if, if whatever our motivation is, let's say it's some sort of justice, he just wants to have a good king. A good king would be good for Ilario's business. All right, I'm with you. You know, I can. And that might be a counter to Littlefinger's chaos is a ladder. You know, having another character seeking out stability would be a foil to Littlefinger seeking out chaos. Yeah, actually, I do think that is kind of the case between Varys and Littlefinger. That is the, the they are, they are kind dichotomy. of the dichotomy. They're, they are foils to one another in, in that. And even though, again, like we're saying, even if Varys is saying, like, is working towards stability or what, that's what he like, seems to want. That isn't what is helping him to get what he needs. He still agrees the chaos is a lot. Like the chaos is what's helping him get to the stability that he wants, right? Yeah. Uh, I think. I think. But his end goal might be stability. Littlefinger's end goal is power, personal. Yeah, power. yeah, personal. Yeah, yeah exactly. Littlefinger's exactly. a lot more like personally vindictive, a lot more personally selfish. Varys, Varys's personal goals seem a lot more selfless, so that we're not in his head, not that we're not in Littlefinger's head either, but. Littlefinger's flat. And they also That's might change over time as yeah. he gets more power. And which is you know. to say that, that selfless means good or means like right. noble like, yeah, or right. heroic. Yeah. Evil or, stuff. And, yeah. yeah. Like the you children. can... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Someone in a Ku Klux Klan might selflessly wanted to put yes. all white people in power. Yes, exactly. It's still an awful thing. Yeah. You're, you're exactly <laughs> right. That's a great yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's you, a you can totally be selfless and yeah, you still can, awful. You can die for the cause. The cause can be really awful. Yeah, the cost yeah, could be yeah. evil. Yeah. yeah, great discussion. Excellent uh, question because it got us talking here. Nina had a great take. All three, you two both had great takes. I hope my take was good too. Yeah, Nina points out another thing is like one of the other things is a little less... There's already so many characters who are my family is the best, my family deserves it kind of thing. That's that's almost every house has that attitude. So it's kind of interesting that Varus isn't like that if he has a different... That, that would make him... To have him just be another my family deserves it takes away from some of what makes him unique, which doesn't mean it's not true, but maybe we can hope that, that George is, is making doing something a little different with this character. For variety. Let's see here. Adriana Duffy Horling. I have this idea, theory might be too big a word for it, that I have not subjected to rigorous scrutiny, that Brandon Stark's Aaron from Riverrun had to do with wedding arrangements for Lyanna. The Starks decided that, given the events of Hall, she would marry it off to Robert Pronto. Maybe she even found out when a draft was being made for her, a la Sansa. <laughs> That's kind of cool. And so her departure with Rhaegar had to do with running away from an imminent marriage to Robert, even if from Rhaegar's side of it, he was rescuing her from Ares. 
a theory that I like a lot. Nina says, I'm not sure what this theory is suggesting about an errand on Brandon's part. Per Catlin's World of Ice and Fire app article, Brandon left River on following the duel with Baelish in order to meet Lord Rickard's wedding party coming down from the north for Brandon's wedding to Catlin and was returning to River Run when he heard the news about Lyanna. That said, I could certainly believe that the Starks wanted to accelerate Lyanna's marriage in the aftermath of the Harrenhal tourney, especially since Lyanna had apparently been long betrothed to Robert by that time. So it had already been, it wasn't even a new betrothal like that. It was already a well-established arrangement. Nina continues, I don't even necessarily think this would have been a secret from Lyanna. She may well have known that on the coming of the new year, she would be on her way to Storm's End to marry Robert. So yes, I absolutely believe that Lyanna was running away from Riverrun because she did not want to be married to Robert and saw Rhaegar and specifically marriage to Rhaegar as her only alternative. I don't, however, believe Rhaegar thought he would be rescuing Lyanna from Ares because I don't think there's enough evidence that Ares ever identified Lyanna as a Knight of the Laughing Tree. In fact, World of Ice and Fire makes it pretty clear that Ares distrusted Jaime and Rhaegar in the aftermath of the tourney rather than placing blame on Lyanna. Yeah, she doesn't seem to be mentioned at all. I don't know if Ares ever... I don't know if he ever... She ever crossed his mind. He might be just like a lot of other chauvinist males in this society and didn't, wouldn't even consider the woman as being the instigator here. He would only be looking for men for... Especially because it's a joust. In this case, it's not even that chauvinist. It's like you're looking for a jouster. Like, it's... Yeah, like, you probably are looking for a man, which is part of what makes it so sneaky in the first place. If it is Lyanna, which I do believe, it's part of what made it work so well. Is like, even Rhaegar probably wasn't looking for a woman. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, it was a woman? Really? And that explains part of why he fell for her. He's like, wow, you're pretty awesome. <laughs> you're pretty badass. Damn, you not only pulled that off, but you defeated a bunch of people too. Yeah. And then he finishes here. I think Rhaegar was doing exactly what he mentioned in the prophetic vision in the House of the Undying. He'd be doing, finding the mother of the third head of the dragon he believed he had father in order to, you know, save the world. In order to, you know, do all that. Pretty big deal. Patrick DeMatos Ribeiro says, could Terrence Toyne have chosen trial by combat rather than being tortured to death? If so, why didn't he? Yeah, well, I think this is pretty simple. I think the king just was like, no. <laughs> no trial by combat for you. The king, like, by law, he should get a trial by combat. But the king's final say over kind of Trump's law, especially if the king is backed by his swords, which they're usually going to back him unless it's like something particularly evil. And as we saw with Ares, you can go pretty damn evil before anyone's going to stop you if you're the king. And we didn't get this uh, bit of knowledge specifically, but it could contribute to him being Aegon the Unworthy, right? Good point. He didn't follow the laws of the land. And he, like, he was supposed to give this guy a trial by combat and didn't. Of course, he's Aegon the Unworthy. Yeah. yeah. They cite the example of Dunk and his trial by combat Remember, they tried to get out of it by like trial by seven because they were thinking maybe Dunk couldn't even get seven people. And if he didn't get a seventh, he would have been judged guilty. It would have been, he would like, it's like the equivalent of losing on a technicality. The same thing might have happened to Torn, right? He just couldn't find six other people to fight with him. Yeah, like who would fight with him after what he had done? We didn't get that detail, but that might be what happened. That might be why he didn't get the trial by combat. They're yeah. like, sure, find six other people. Yeah. He's like, can I find six? They're like, I'm busy that day. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Like his brothers would fight for him, but there wouldn't be seven of them, probably. You know? Aegon told me I'm <laughs> feeling sick right now, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nina agrees, like there's no reason why the king just has to agree to follow the law. <laughs> and this is a particular king that of all of them would be perhaps the most likely to ignore the actual law. And he wouldn't want to lose. Remember, Nina has a great point here that he already 
went the trial by combat route with Eamon and Nerys trying to disprove the parentage of his own son. And that backfired on him. So he's like, am I really going to... Like, he's not the smartest tool in the shed, but is he really going to try that again? Well, in that case... He might be like, okay, with my brother on his on my side, I might I would probably win, but he's not going to take that chance. And why? He's the king. He's like, nah, you die now, and I want you tortured to death. If you lose a trial by combat, I can't torture you. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, no, that's out. That's right out yeah. of the question. And I can't make Bethany watch. So, you know, you don't let's forget he also executed the hand his hand to the king, the Bracken Lord, whose name is never mentioned. He's just Lord Bracken. <laughs> Didn't, didn't Ares even, wasn't that the trial? All right, your opponent is fire. Wasn't that yeah. it? So he might have said, yeah, here, trial by combat. You're going to fight these four horses that are tied to your limbs. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to fight physics. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Ares is a great example of what he did to Brandon and Rickard. Yes, you're totally right. So yeah, they don't have to listen. They do not have to listen. The king is like, yeah, I do what I want. Anthony Palma, how's it going? Anthony says... Taisha is the sailor's wife, a sex worker in Bravos, and Tyrion is the father of her daughter, Lana. Well, it's probably not true. It could be. Like, this is another one. It's like, well, the screw fits, but it probably fits elsewhere, too. This one is one that fits, but it's not like, there's not a lot pointing to it. It just kind of works. Nina also has a little disgust for the idea because it would make Tywin right kind of by accident, like dismissing Taisha as a whore. Like she actually tur- becomes one afterwards. It's kind of like, mm, yeah, like it's not like she had to. It's not like that's the only available employment for her, you know? What do you mean? She didn't become a whore. She married every one of those men. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, technically. Yeah. Yikes. Also, we I have. I understand Nina's point, but I like this theory. I just want to say I. Also, we have the. Nina points out that there's the Ina, the one eyed prophetess at the happy port, who does the same thing that Maggie the Frog does by taking a sip of your blood up to be thinking she can tell futures. I don't know if she's accurate or not. Probably is. But maybe not. Maybe she just tells these fortunes and it's just like, you know, a modern fortune teller where they're just like using con artist tricks to make themselves sound accurate. But she specifically said the sailor's wife's true husband was dead. Which... It was that Tyrion, because that is who she first married. So that would be her true husband. So Tyrion's not dead, unless it's a metaphorical dead. Because he yeah, fell. Yeah. He, like we discussed earlier. Right, he's already died. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But that seems a little controversial. And that seems a little she might have had some other husband later, some other legitimate marriage later on that fell apart for some reason. And she got you know sold into slavery or who knows. Yeah. It's a, a chink in the armor for sure, but I don't think it completely disproves the, the theory. Mm. Which means it's definitely right because I like it. Okay, the next one from Kate Nelson. The others are the old gods. N- Nina says, probably not. I think the old gods are exactly what Ojojin says they are. The spirits of the greenseers who have been reabsorbed in the werewolves. Now, it's possible that those spirits in turn were responsible for creating the others or had something to do with it or that they are related to them or that they are drawn out from the werewood and somehow... A spirit was taken from one place and put into something else. That's a magical thing. That's like like literally what's going on with John. Like if he second lives from his body into a where into a into ghost and then goes back to his own body, then why not something like this, where a spirit of someone dead is put into the body of an other or whatever the others even are? So we can't just dismiss it because the magic is isn't supported because that kind of is supported at least in a roundabout way. But I think you could arguably say it's less than roundabout. It's even closer than that. But still, I don't agree. I don't think they are the old gods. I think they 
are an aspect of the old gods. They're like part of the pantheon, maybe. Uh, I was going to say there's some of the old gods, but there's other old gods also. That's yeah, and maybe they're like the newer old gods because they didn't they don't predate the children who have been worshiping the old gods for a lot longer. They might be like, I don't know, like the equivalent of the angels if you're kind of being trying to frame it in terms of like Christianity where they are a creation of God and they are otherworldly and they're deadly and you don't want to mess with them. <laughs> but they aren't actual gods. They're so far beyond humans that someone like Craster might worship them because they seem godlike and they're powerful. But it's semantics, right? Like what is a god? What defines a deity? in the first place, what defines a god. So I, don't, I wouldn't say Kate is wrong, but I would word it a little differently. But it's close. It's close. Like you might just remove the, instead of the others are the old gods, the others are old gods. That might be mm. just that sure. slight semantic difference makes it more accurate, potentially. I mean, the way that some of the others are portrayed is basically like undead green spheres. What's that? Add a C to it, and it changes things even more. The cold, <laughs> cold gods. The cold gods. Oh, nice. <laughs> I thought you meant add an ocean. Add a, the letter C. <laughs> I thought you old meant gods. Like, I thought you meant the old goods. The old, oh, the goods. old gods. The old fish. The old fish. Yeah, add a C to it. The old cods. (laughs) (laughs) The cold cods. (laughs) Those are the ironborn. That's the drowned god. (laughs) (laughs) No, the drowned cod. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. You're totally right. Uh, Pat Finney says, Jamie and Cersei will be buried in one of the pyromancer's vaults with sand while Jamie is choking the life out of Cersei to stop her from blowing up King's Landing. That's kind of cool because they would choke to death from the sand and be suffocated by the sand. He's like, no, I'm going to suffocate you with my hand first before the <laughs> sand gets you. I'm not letting the sand get you. I'm taking you out. Yeah, and it would, <laughs> you know, show us the comparison to the show with them being buried. Sand instead of rocks? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. It's better than the pile of rocks. <laughs> Of the red keep collapsing on them. I don't like the red keep collapsing on them. I don't have a problem. I mean, I see here even now, I think Nina was against the Valencar being a pile of rocks. And I don't know. I don't think it was that exactly to me. And I, I think this is a way for the, yeah, for both to be true. For Jamie to be part of Cersei's death, but also for Jamie to die in it. I like the the exercise. I agree with you. Maybe it's not this exact thing, but I like the exercise of like, yes, okay, they're going to die together. But also, he's going to kill her. So. Yeah. Like, I, I like that. I, I, I do. I, that's the crux of, like, what I, I agree. Like, I, I agree with the sentiment that, like, I prefer the idea that Jamie takes out Cersei and dies himself to the idea of Jamie living and having a redemption and a life. Like, I don't know. I, I, I was happy with that ending, ultimately. Yeah, like the fact that he's dying, but he's, like, been stabbed or is bleeding to death, but hasn't died yet. Yeah. It wouldn't take much for him to kill Cersei. She's not a warrior, like... Yeah. Choking her wouldn't be that hard for him, even if he's weak, wounded. Yeah. And then blood loss or, yeah, it doesn't have to be stuff falling on them to finish them off, but it could. Like sand makes sense because of the, that is the mechanism to stop wildfire. That, we, that has been established. Yeah. yeah. So it I makes could, more sense than the rocks to me. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, it is better than the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> I think about this one a lot and I, I don't even know what it should be or what I want exactly, but a thought I've had that I wouldn't mind is if, None of it happens. It's just a completely false prophecy that Cersei's been paranoid about her whole life and it's just not going to come true at all. You know, that's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I, would, I would appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan Gurley says, Crazy theory, Stannis takes Winterfell and the resurrected Jon Snow goes and becomes Lord of Winterfell and bends the knee to Stannis while at the feast, Hall and Reed comes and tells Jon that he's Rhaegar's son and the rightful heir and then Stannis bends the knee to Jon. Stannis later dies fighting the others. 
Well, the problem with that is how is Stannis going to believe this? How is he going to just believe Howland Reed? Would Melisandre confirm it for him? Yeah, Stannis is really stubborn and he believes he's, he's already took a while for him to believe what Melisandre was telling him, all, except for the part about him being king. He believed that straight away. As Zora High part, he struggled to accept. So he might be willing to let that go. He's like, oh, I'm not a Zora High. Phew, I really didn't want to be that anyway. <laughs> but this whole rightful king stuff, I, I feel like it would be a lot harder for him to let that go without proof. And I just don't know where that proof is going to come from. Like, how is that? Like, maybe Melisandre is straight up telling, like, actually, bro, I was wrong. It's him, I, not you. But even I can I imagine know. him, especially if he's already sacrificed Shireen, rejecting that truth. Even if Melisandre or someone, to, even if there was clear proof, he just would reject it. Even if it was pure insanity, he'll just be purely insane after he kills his own daughter and won't let anything get in the way of what he thought he was doing that for. Which means I don't think this will come to fruition if he burns Shireen. Yeah, and I think even if Stannis believed that it was true, I don't think he would just necessarily believe in the legitimacy of Jon's right to rule as king on the Iron Throne over the Seven Kingdoms. I think that he would be like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think that he would jump to that because I don't think Stannis is a Targaryen loyalist like that. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah, like, yes, his claim is he built chose, on his right, but like he chose to follow his brother in rebellion. And that was established. Davos yeah. threw that in his face. He's like, like you did with Robert and Aaron. And, and Stannis paused and was like, and, and like the, what's his name? Florent was like, oh, I can't believe you said that. Cause I should I execute him for you? But Stannis, being the man he is, is like, no, actually, that's a, valid criticism. You know, that's a valid point you make. It was a hard choice, but I chose my brother and my family. He's not going to unchoose that, I don't yeah. think. No. Yeah, because if he was, he would be trying to go help Danny. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. If yeah. he's not going to help Danny, he's not going to accept John either, yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's yeah. my take on it. I agree. So I like, I, I, I think it's an interesting possibility and I do wonder how Stannis will react or if he will. He might just die before some of these things come to a head. That would that'd be one way to get around having to have his reaction to it. And I also am curious if Melisandre abandons him, if that happens, that would be really interesting and in how he would react. Here's a quick one. Dr. Kavita says, I like my fire and blood theory that the testimony of Mushroom was written under a pseudonym or by several people and collected under Aegon III. If multi-authored, one of these people was definitely Larry Strong. Well, I'm not going to respond to this. We're going to have a whole episode on it. So consider this a little bit of setup. Yes, that's our episode next Sunday, the mushroom episode. The mushroom episode, which we yeah. will discuss things like sources both within world and outworld and how these things tend to work. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of experience in this regard yeah. and a lot of real world knowledge, a lot of uh, scholarship to bring to the table. So, as you could imagine, though, based on us having her on, yeah, <laughs> we are a fan of the idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Okay, one or two more. We're definitely running short of time, which is kind of what we knew. So if your question wasn't read, fear not. We will do another trial by theory. We'll starting with the questions that were not answered. We'll start with those whenever that is. Probably be a few months away. But given this seemed to be a pretty popular idea, I wasn't sure it would be because some of these theories are they've been around for a while, but some of y'all just haven't discussed them before with fresh takes on theories, new theories as well. So it's, it's going well. So we'll definitely do it again in, in a few months or so and start with the ones that we didn't get to today and then get into new ones. You do it maybe with a, a little better perspective of how long it'll take I to... Two. I think we got through 25 or so. so yeah, yeah, marking each one we did. So we'll be able to tell that. But I have two thoughts on this. Um, one, Tara Incognita suggested that our part two involve chat polls and tier lists, Ooh, which tier would be kind of fun. The tier fun. list idea is a fun idea. I like um, tier lists. 
we watch that. There's a couple people I watch that do tier lists. So I kind of like the idea of that in general. So I, I think we'll look into that. Two, we will still be giving away shirts to those of you who submitted theories. Even if your theory wasn't read, please make sure to keep tabs on your social media to see a reply. One more theory here, and then we'll start wrapping it up with, with the other drawing and, and any other last-minute questions that snuck in. Julie A. from our Discord chat said that Rob, before he died, warged into Grey Wind and then Shaggy Dog and is living his second life on Skagos. I absolutely believe the first part of warging into Grey Wind. I mean, it's it seems like a kind of almost a maybe even the standard thing for a skin changer to do to f- flee to the only place your awareness can go would be to another body, which obviously <laughs> the rest of us can't do that. We don't have that option, but he does. He does have that option, even if he's not in full control. It might be partly subconscious. But then going from Grey Wind to Shaggy Dog and I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if it's possible to jump. It's more likely than jumping into some other random wolf out there. Like these wolves are at least related, literally related. They're brothers, siblings, whatever. So yeah, but jumping into an animal you've never been in before, like maybe you could do that if you were a really powerful warg, but I don't know that Rob was that powerful. I do think he was a warg. I think there's a few pieces of evidence that are pretty strong that he was warging Shaggy Dog using the goat tracks as one example or in battle maybe and Rob's growing to, into a man that was a little more wolfish and just the way he was some of that was just the can, the savagery of being on campaign and having so much weight on his shoulders and so much responsibility but also just being in his wolf sometimes maybe having wolf dreams and not maybe fully being conscious of what was happening so uh, yeah I like the idea of him working into Greywind afterwards but I'm not sure it went farther but this is a perfect example of one where if you want to believe that do not let anyone tell you you're wrong because it is no impact on the story. If you want to believe that Rob is happily living on Skagos, do it. <laughs> it is not like I have no problem with people thinking that. It has no impact on the story. It's fun if you want to believe he's that happened. Cool. What's the farthest away someone has warred into another huh. animal? Yeah, it does. Real distance proximity matter. seems to matter. I can't think of an example of someone warging into something it wasn't, I don't know, I haven't thought about this much, but out of eye shots. Blood Raven. Shot, maybe. Well, Blood Raven has definitely been in some birds that he wasn't right next to. And it may be okay. one of the things like the more advanced you are, the farther away you can go. And he may have led the direwolves to near Winterfell for the Starks to find. Because it was very unusual. That's pointed out. It's like, what is a direwolf doing all the way down here? All those, again, were total speculation, but he might have warged into a bird that was nearby him and then flew the bird far away. He might have warged into a direwolf that was nearby him and then had the wolf go far away. That might be true for the direwolf in this case, especially, but less true probably for Mormont's raven, which it seems to he's in. Like, did he... Says he just stayed in it the whole time or once he was in it via proximity, sent it off, then he can easily access it again from a distance. Yeah, Maybe that's... Inventing too much. Blood Raven could also be on other levels, working through trees and stuff. Like he's in Brand's dreams from a distance. So, like, maybe he can get it. It doesn't seem any more difficult than getting, like, if you can go into a boy's mind from a distance, why not an animal? You know, given, you know. (laughs) Let's let's give that that is a possibility. We're still talking about Blood Raven, who is maybe the most powerful wizardress character we know of. Rob is like, it seems like maybe he can warg, you know? Yeah, he's (laughs) a subconscious. Warg at most, maybe. Yeah. Like he never comes out and says anything of that regard. So yeah, we kind of assume he's lower level power. Maybe he would have grown into it if he had had some training. But yeah, like it seems like it's going the way it's going the way of Arya, probably, where she's not exactly clear what's happening, but it's just growing and growing. And 
with more time, it may have grown into something really powerful, but there wasn't more time. He was killed. Okay, so yeah, we, we probably didn't even get through half of the questions y'all sent to us. So apologies if it didn't happen for you. We didn't do them in any particular order. It was kind of random. We didn't pick the ones we wanted or anything like that. It was just no, we kind just of went. We just vibed. We did just vibe. Pretty random. So yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll do this again and start with the ones that didn't get read and then get into ones that were submitted. Shall we have our yeah. next drawing? We, we can. I drew and the winner was number 42, which was Tara Incognita, the very person who suggested doing the tier list. Thing. <laughs> That's amazing. So at Tara Incognita, you can, I put the information in the chat for you, but you can do that and we'll get you a shirt for that. And again, we will be giving away shirts to those of you who submitted ahead of time. I just want to take a little more time to, I have, I have to contact every one of you. It's a little different how to do that. But yeah. You might not, you might still be a winner, in other words, if you're You listening. might still be a winner. Uh, I mean, you're all a winner <laughs> to me in my heart. So, you know, you're all winners, really. Bloody Ben Blackwood sends a super chat, says, I miss you all. Hope to see you all at Ice and FireCon, depending on how a few things line up. Yes, we do too. We hope to see you, Scott. We hope your family situation improves. And we, we see you there. Yeah, hope we see you there. TKOK Podcast Network sends a super chat and says, heart, 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 heart. Four hearts. One for each of us and one left over. One how for about, him. How nice. One for him. Cool. Well, we are all of one heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shout out to TKOK Podcast Network, home of the New Dad Podcast and some other excellent shows. The final poll, Ashea ran the Will There Be a Ghost POV chapter. Yes. 78% yes, 21% no. Most so. people think so. George, I hope you're listening. Mm-hmm. Check it out. <laughs> I know you're not. But take that data and uh, give us that Ghost POV chapter. The trivia question was... Whose last words were, he's dead? The answer, Kevin Lannister. He's dead, referring to Aegon. When Varys is like, Aegon has learned, he's like, hey, he's dead. No, he is not. He has learned to fish. And his voice, Varys' voice turns a little, it gets more grave, and it's like, whoa, what's going on here? That, by the way, is a moment full of theorizing. Why is Varys bothering to explain himself to a dying man? Partly maybe just because George wanted to, partly because Varus is just kind of like that. Maybe because Varus thinks someone else is listening and wants to hear. That's my thought. I, I had the same thought that it seems a little too much. Uh, what was it from the Incredibles? Monologuing yeah, too monologuing, much. Yeah, monologuing, yeah. Yeah. But, but it makes sense if he thinks that someone else is listening in on this. Yeah. Which casts some doubt on some of the stuff he's saying also. <laughs> well, you know who is listening for sure are the other little birds in the room. Like, I don't know why he, I don't know if he needs them to hear that, but there are other people in the room already, like without considering hidden people. I'm not, so that is one angle to this that is at least worth keeping in mind. Like I said, next week, Mushroom and Sources with Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn. If you missed her last or her first appearance on our show, it was during House of the Dragon season. I believe it was the preview episode for episode six, I think. It yeah, might have been six or seven. Six yeah. or seven. So you, a lot of y'all might not have seen that because it was a preview episode and those preview episodes aren't, aren't watched as much. They're not relevant for very long because they only are posted about four, you know, less than 48 hours before the next TV show episode goes up. You may have missed that, but... If you want to go back and check it, there's a lot of great discussions that are still relevant in preparation for this one, or just catch this one live or the podcast version. What was your favorite part of this episode? What did you find most insightful or funny? Let us know, and you might get a shout out. We might even turn your suggestion into a short video, like a clip or a short YouTube short or something like that. So we'd be very thankful if you find 
something that we decide to turn into that. And that would be very much worthy of a shout out or two. Yeah, for context, as you, if you've been watching us for a while, you know we have a really, really big back catalog. And traditionally, we haven't clipped a lot of that stuff. So yes, for these new episodes, we want that. But also, if you're going back and watching an old episode and you're like, that was a great moment, we will genuinely appreciate it so much if you point it out and then we clip it. Like It's helping the podcast just as much as any monetary donation could do, that, that time and labor. It could be poignant. It could be interesting. It could be funny. It could be silly. Whatever. Just something that's short and yeah. use your best judgment. Yeah, use your best, you yeah. I'm sure you've noticed that on our TikTok, our YouTube shorts, on the Facebook group and whatnot, I've been sharing those little one-minute clips. So it's part of that initiative. But honestly, it's y'all. You're the viewers. It's you who should be able to most identify what's interesting and clippable more than us. It's a little difficult sometimes to, to say something and be part of it and identify it. It's, you, you know, I'm sure y'all get what I mean. It's weird to be like about yourselves. Like that thing I just said, that was really insightful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's hard. I might say that about you, Sean or Shea, but I'm, I'm not like, good job, me. Like I was... <laughs> That was really good. I, I'm great. You know, that's, yeah, that's a little weird. <laughs> there, are, there might even be things about yourself that you would even say that, but it was three years ago and you forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if one of our fans out there has watched something from three years ago, let us know some cool or ironic thing. And it might even be more relevant if we said something that came to fruition. If the next book comes out, we nailed some theory, but we forgot that we did that. <laughs> help, us, help us out. <laughs> yeah, more real. So... Thanks, y'all. Uh, if you did send your theory, if you did participate in the live chat, if you have spread the word about History of Westeros in some other way, if you've left us a review, if you are a monthly subscriber on Patreon or Spotify, or if you sent us a donation, all the various ways to support us. And there are, as you could hear by that, quite a few. We really appreciate it. I'm glad we have multiple ways. It allows you all to pick and choose what makes you most comfortable, what you're able to do, what you enjoy. That's great. It's one of the things about our community and the wider Song of Ice and Fire community that is just great. We love it. We love being here. We're, we, I feel, I'm not a religious person, but I feel blessed. So we'll see you all next time. As I said, Dr. Kavita Mudan Finn and Mushroom Sourcing, thanks for supporting us. If you do on Patreon or Spotify, thanks to Nina for her very valuable insight on these wide open topics. Theory crafting is. <laughs> it's one theory can generate hours of discussion. So yeah. I, I appreciate Nina often being very succinct and, and concise. Sometimes I'm not as much so. <laughs> <laughs> that was very concisely said. Sometimes <laughs> I am, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that was a really good thing I just said. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, <laughs> and Bran Winslow for our intros both musical and visual and Michael Klarfeld as well for that and the maps you see although he did not make that hidden dragon Crouching Tiger hidden dragon poster behind Sean we were joking before the show before the episode started how Crouching Tiger hidden dragon is totally could be like a Volantis thing because they have the tiger faction and there's hidden dragon like like young Griff or I don't Danny or whoever else. Yeah. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> that movie, yes, fits into Essos quite well. <laughs> anyway, folks, you know what to do in the midst, the in the midst, in, in between episodes. I say it every time and I hope you take that advice. Valar, 
Riri. 